0: Before we begin this week's episode of the Final Word Cricket podcast with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, a word for our dearest friends at Woodstock Cricket. With Woodstock Cricket, you can get some of the best cricket bats in the world at an affordable price and with a healthy 20% discount because you are part of the Final Word fraternity. 20%, and that is
1: a lot. The cost of bats these days, 20% off the cost of a, of, of a heavy cost of a bat, is a lot of discount, and you get a lot of bats for your money. They're beautiful bats, they're lighter. To the touch, but they're heavier in the wood. I don't know quite what that means, exactly. but <laughs> I, I, I've picked one up and honestly thought it was like two pounds nine, and found out that it was like three pounds two. It was crazy. That might be an exaggeration, but you get my drift.
0: I do, and I just want to come back to the money for a moment here. One of the top-line Australian bats bought off the shelf these days can set you back anywhere up to about $1,200. I was looking at it the other day, which is a, a decent whack of money. So even though Woodstock is an English brand, let's do the maths on that if you're in Australia and want to get involved here because of the discount. Now, the Airstream and the Tour de Force, two Woodstock bats, went number one and number two in the Cricketers' Good Gear Guide last year. Independently verified Two of the best cricket bats in the world They were at 375 quid That's about $700 Give or take You take 20% off that It's down to 560 That's less than half in terms of the bats that we're referring to in Australia at the moment. That's, now, sure, there'll be some postage and handling. Yeah, sure, there'll be a bit of time when you're waiting for it to get to you. But it'll be handmade. You'll have a consultation uh, down the Zoom screen to make sure it's the right bat for you in terms of the way they make it with the way you play and all the rest of it. And then you're going to get a bat that's, that's much cheaper and in all probability, much better. It's an absolute
1: no-brainer, Collo, isn't it? I mean, as you say, less than half the price. And it's a thing of beauty and wonder because you, you, you kind of develop a rapport and a relationship with this bat from the moment it's conceived. This is like bringing a child into the world. (laughs) And, you know, if you could bring a child into the world for half the price that they normally cost, what fool
0: would not do that? Well, yes, I can vouch for this. I yeah. would I would do it at half price if I could have. <laughs> Batmaker to the stars, uh, John Newsome is the is the man in charge there uh, in the factory. Uh, speaking of which, Josh De Silva, West Indian star, has a Woodstock at the moment, having just signed and made a century against England a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Stephen Finn is on uh-huh. their books, and uh, you make a podcast with Finney as well, and He started the season well with his Woodstock, I think I'm right in saying.
1: He really did. He gave us five whole minutes on that one six that he hit (laughs) with it. Um, And and it was a beautiful shot in actual fact. It was short. He swiveled, pulled, got it right out of the meat, sent it flying out of Hove. Uh, It's clearly a great bat if if Finney can hit a six with it.
0: Woodstockcricket.co.uk. The offer code is TFW20. Get yourself the best bat in the world at a 20% discount because you listen to the final word. TFW20, woodstockcricket.co.uk. I had to go about it right. It's the final word cricket podcast. Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, and we have a new season, season 12, episode one. Our naming convention, Daniel, over the years has been that when the new domestic season starts in Australia or in England, we start our new season, and so it goes because the county championship started last week and appropriately. You were with me again uh, in Jeff's absence, who's taking a couple of weeks off over Easter. He'll be back with me next week. We're back in your sitting room, and the season is anew in the UK.
1: It is, and isn't it wonderful? It's just such a beautiful feeling. I mean, it, essentially, on Christmas Eve, which is the Wednesday before the first day, it starts on the Thursday, I just I prepare myself. I think, which games am I going to start with? And obviously, it's going to be Surrey. I'm going to check straight in on Surrey because they're my team. It doesn't take me long before I do that delicious thing when I just get to hop around. There was you at Middlesex. Mm. There was, with Kevin Hand, of course, check out the OPPO north of the river. Uh, I then I love to go to this sort of outgrounds I love to go to Wantage Road I love to hear there's a different kind of hum to it and suddenly it's almost as if the winter never happened it's as if the second world war is so far behind us now <laughs> it's so far behind us that we're we're gaily frolicking the bunting is out the straw boaters are on the head the teas, the hampers the champers the lot and it's um it's an invigorating and beautiful experience
0: beautifully put uh normally this would be the time in 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 a new season when I would say to Jeff, how many episodes have we recorded? And Mm. he would say something like, I'll work it out and tell you in a future show. We never quite get around to it. But it must be in the, I don't know, four or five or six hundred by now. At least. All the daily shows. And we've been making these twice a week for, well, since the start of 2019, or maybe it was the the last quarter of 2018, we we went once a week, regardless of what was happening. And then during the pandemic, around this time of year, two years ago, we Mm. Brought story time Into the mix And you throw in All the dailies From the World Cup To the Ashes To all the test series And one day series World T20 World Cup mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well and truly in the I hundreds. I reckon you will be up, up around 700. Yeah, it could well be. We might work it out before we start season 13, which will be in about six months' time, uh, when they're uh, having their Christmas Eve in, in Australia in about October. We're not going to do a story time this week, a bit of housekeeping to begin. Because it's Easter, uh, we're all going away. We've all got commitments. So in my case, I'm going to Margate. I'm taking Rach and Winnie uh, out uh. to the water, uh, mostly because I'm a Libertines fan and Pete Doherty lived out there for a while and um, they have a hotel that the Libertines own out there. I did ask Rach can we stay at the Libertine's hotel to which she said we won't be doing that we'll be staying (laughs) at a (laughs) <laughs> at an airbnb somewhere far more nice than what i would have liked but yeah so i'm away uh, jeff's having a breather uh, you're a busy boy so no story time this week however if you do have a craving for tales and you haven't yet listened to story time 85 from last week if i do say so myself mm. that was an especially good episode uh, with your tale about ted allison that's right uh, and then mandy mitchell in us as we have joked in the past we, we we prep for story time and then we use the tales on commentary that was very much the Case for Mandy. I, I spent about quarter of an hour uh, talking about him Did on you? Middlesex comms when it was drifting along at Lords on the weekend.
1: <laughs> so that was, that, that was the the great tale of the hay fever, which is, I mean, that's just one of the greatest reasons not to play Test cricket. I yeah. can think of.
0: I mean, long story short, and worth going back to listen to a man who made his Test debut the previous week, ruled himself out because he was afraid of sneezing at short leg and dropping a catch off Headley Verity, only to never play again. Mandy Mitchellennis. It has been. A weekend of county cricket across the shires. They were all playing with the exception of Lancashire and Yorkshire who start their campaigns this week. Uh, Six of the eight games were draws, but that does not do justice at all to the cricket that was played. There were 20 centuries which stood out uh, given the relative low scoring in the last couple of years. There was the usual ridiculous whining on social media about how everything's going to hell in a handbasket around England red ball cricket which you just become conditioned to now don't Mm -hmm. you people who claim to love county cricket more than any other form of the game spend the whole time whinging across four days when it's a bloody glorious spectacle we've got these live streams enhanced streams around the country so many people are talking about county cricket in ways that I'm sure was the case decades ago but wasn't the case five years ago there there is a an added Mm -hmm. oomph Uh, Now, because of the, the proliferation of coverage, the accessibility online, partly due to the ECB portal and the social media accounts and the work the counties do themselves. It's a joyous first weekend of the season. It's fantastic. And that's
1: the other thing you get to do. You can flit around on the radio in your garden or if you're out and about, or you can flit around on YouTube. You can see the action. You can put faces to names, especially at the beginning of the season when people are making their debuts for new counties, having moved in the closed season. And also, I'll tell you one thing, it really highlighted that Warwickshire aren't doing this right because they've put their live stream on their website, but you've got to get a login and you've got to do all sorts of stuff. It's it's basically hidden. You can't find it on YouTube. So yes. you find yesterday's play. And now years ago, three, four years ago, that would have meant nothing to be able to thought that's perfectly normal. But it was really noticeable. They were noticeable by their absence. There was a moment, it was a dramatic moment at Edgbaston in an otherwise forgettable game when the radio line went down so i went desperately searching for the live stream i couldn't get on to the live stream this was trees in deserts i had no idea what was going on and this was the champions playing against surrey in the first game of the season and then you realize just how entitled we've become my expectation is that i get to see and hear every ball of every game if i want it across the entire suite of matches, and I was being deprived for about nine balls. (laughs) And I was in a
0: panic. (laughs) Like, I can't live like this. I've seen you in a flat many times. I can Mm. picture it already. Hey, uh, before we get into what actually happened in these games, I should say that later in the show we'll be talking to author a uh, pundit, a uh, uh, columnist, journalist, radio host, Justin Smith, about uh, his new book, Cooper Not Out, a a fictional fantasy book set in 1984, which I very much enjoyed. And I thought I'd get Justin on the show to have a chat around that. So that'll be in the second part. But yes, initially, we're going we're gonna to dive deep into the county championship. We're going to talk about the England team, especially the two old guys, you might've heard of them, James Anderson, and Stuart brought Some interesting stuff going on with those two During the week The national contracts are out in Australia For the men We're expecting to see Andrew McDonald Confirmed as coach this week too So we'll have a natter around that The IPL, what doing? Daniel, you've been mm. commentating uh-huh. Several of those games for the BBC And we'll also go back over to South Africa For the second test match Between the Proteas and Bangladesh And we'll also weave in a bit of nerd pledge And I'm reliably informed by you uh, yes. That we have it Another great tale to tell uh, before we go to our mid-show break. So,
1: just a little teaser. I think I might have got the answer. It came with a clue, this one, and I
0: think I might actually have got it. this, This is rare. Uh, it's, it is rare. It's rare that it's we not- get them first go on a clue these days because the clues are getting more and more obscure. Oh, they really are. <laughs> so uh, the new season, you touched on players changing clubs. You also touched on, uh, when we were talking before recording, the pitches in April and your theory, mm. which is advanced by, we already mentioned Steve Finn off the top in the, uh, in the Woodstock promotion, but uh, Finney's got a theory about why pitches aren't so bad at this particular mm. point of the year. He has. He was, he was working on the
1: IPL with Varun Chopra, a former Warwickshire and Essex opener. And Varun said to him that he always loved batting at the beginning of April, and he would aim to fill his boots, get as many as he could in the first two games. Because what normally happens is you play your first two games home and away. One at home, one away. Fairly (laughs) standard, pretty normal practice. So he found that when you arrived at the ground, The pitches for the very first game of the season in every ground were the most lovingly cared for. They were the most perfect. Nobody's been running up and down on them. You know, it's not just the running on the pitch from the playing on the pitch. It's, you know, there are no forward short legs. There's nobody else that have been on it. You know, this is the most pristine surface you're going to get. You couple that with the fact that it's nearly always colder. Um, So the ball tends not to swing so much. It tends to have a cold surface on which it hits. You get a true bounce. You can trust it. That's the time to fill your boots. And in
0: fact, as you said, 20 tonnes. Players did fill their boots. They really did. Yeah, it's a bit deceptive with the six draws out of eight games because some were affected by rain and and snow being able to be some snow. But uh, yeah, there were some brilliant draws. You don't always think of draws as brilliant. There are also some fairly dismal draws, uh, which... Is is the nature when you've had rain affect a game? Uh, let's start with one of those, but in a celebratory fashion, because yes. Matt Critchley for England, the bandwagon which <laughs> we may possibly have started this time last week in your uh, in your living room in Tooting when interviewing Essex's newest import, having come from Derbyshire. Not only did he take the field at Chelmsford for the first time for his new club in Division One uh, on Thursday, he did so and raised the bat. And took four wickets and made it <laughs> to What more can you ask for? Critchley for England.
1: Oh, it was absolutely perfect. I mean, it was, it was your idea to go for Critchley. You, you, we were brainstorming people and you mentioned Critchley. And I went, yes, absolutely. Because i had been, my first encounter with Critchley was about five or six years ago. I think I mentioned in the pod last week when the guy at, uh, at Derbyshire, Dave Griffin, yes, was telling me about this guy. He's the one to watch. He's great great leggy. He then proceeded to hit 100 off 70 odd balls or something ridiculous. And sure enough, playing for his his debut game for Essex, the 100 the I loved, I, but I think the four wickets I loved even more on such a placid surface that yeah. no one was getting anything out of. I mean, it was runs galore. The five centuries in the match, Alistair Cook hit his 70th century. Could he? Could he? 30 more? Well, oh, I don't think he can. I know?
0: mean, it would require him playing for five more years. I think
1: it would, or, or it would require him coming out of retirement. <laughs> you never know. Well, that he'd... might
0: deprive him of the chance to hit first-class tons, though. In winter. He'd get 1st he'd get class yeah. games in winter. That's so true. It's, that's look, true. It's, who knows? That's he speculation. Nearly, he nearly played for Tasmania last, last winter, I'm told. I'm wow. not sure if anyone wrote this story. If I were a better journalist, I would have chased this story up. Word on the street from a couple of well-placed sources was that Cook was an inch away from coming out to Australia not only to commentate, which would have been his day job, but whilst there, hanging out with his mate Pete Siddle, his old Essex ah. teammate, who, of course, has moved counties now, but yeah. Sids had uh, put some work in on Cookie to get him to play in the Sheffield Shield. Now, that would have been interesting. It's that would be. Happen.
1: And he's, he's scored runs in Australia before. Very 766 <laughs> of them in one <laughs> He series. really has. So, you know, there could be hundreds there. But, look, 70, 70 tonnes, 75 tonnes in the modern era is an extraordinary achievement if it you get to 75 yeah. tonnes. Obviously, there was crit- Critches, as you've nicknamed him. I think that's fantastic. But for him to take the wickets as well, it was just such a shame. I mean, Chelmsford tends to be a really tricky place to bat on that first day. And then the back end of the match, that's when Simon Harmer comes in. But of course, Simon Harmer's away playing against Bangladesh, more of which later. So Critchley is doing quite a lot of the the legwork with the spin and spin bowling department. And it's not going to hurt him at all, is it? Because... More eyes are on the first game of the season in some ways than any other game. So, given the way England's selection's going, he's
0: going to be up near the top of the averages. He's going They're, to be. He's going to be right, right near the chatted, top at the very same time that we are we are talking about him every week. I and know it was great social Wouldn't media it be great feedback. If we did get him there
1: because you know, we're going to be in and around the uh, test circuit look, this summer. We,
0: we told him last week when interviewing him that we expected him to make his test to in around around July. Now, mm-hmm. in hindsight, England are playing a test match in July. Let's call it August when South Africa are here. They'll be calling for him in all the papers by then, but remember where you heard it first uh, in April on the final word. So 132, he made in 179 balls, with one six that nearly took out the camera, the mm. dead straight camera. His strike rate for the first 50 was 50, and for the second 50, it was 100. So a really well-paced innings as well. You love to hear that, don't you? It was an even 50 and an even 100 in terms of the, going the through strike the gears. rate, going through the gears. Mm. Yeah, and there was kind of nothing that Jackson Bird or Darren Stevens could, could do about it. So away he went, as you say, four wickets when he bowled. He bowled frugally. He bowled about 43 overs as well because Kent uh, batted until their 188th. So it was Essex five one four to Kent five Let's forget about the rest of that because that was an absolute shame. Well, shameless. Alistair but Cook did bowl he did sorry right you are yeah he, who
1: was he impersonating i don't really know i mean it was, was it sort of it was
0: sort of familiar no it was a kind of sideways crabby shuffle like thing. farney de villiers it? but he wouldn't he wouldn't know farney de villiers no. that's not me reflecting on alistair cook it's just that why would you know to care about a, a a medium fast bowler from the early 90s i don't really know who it was
1: i wondered if it was graham gooch his mentor because of course Gucci used okay. to bowl a bit I wondered he was he, looking he, out
0: to the pavilion as he was running in as well
1: yeah and he was he, he had his arms stretched out wide like a, doing
0: sort of sideways crab shuffle okay. and, uh, okay. but that was fun it's all over social media uh, big result at Southampton Hampshire beat uh, Somerset who Seemingly always go in favourites to win the comp. Well, Hampshire beat them by an innings and 113 <sighs> runs inside three days. Uh, Somerset all out for 180 the first time, 135 the second time. Between times, Hampshire piled on 428 with a ton to open at Joe Weatherly and runs for Ian Holland, another favourite of mine, the man who was born in Wisconsin, grew up in Melbourne, won a reality TV show to become a first-class cricketer in Victoria briefly played one shield game came out to play club cricket in Hampshire they worked out he was eligible through a parent to get a British passport playing in the Hampshire first class team whilst also playing international cricket for the United States of America as he is at the moment
1: uh, and beautiful story and a makeshift opener he wasn't an opener until last
0: year and then he, I think he got 100 the first time he opened he did yeah he made a big hundred last year against Middlesex I think it was and, and now a permanent fixture but also in that attack Abbas, Barker, Abbott, Holland, Fuller, Dawson. I mean, little wonder. Mm. I mean, that's a test attack, straight up. Uh, and Keith
1: Barker, I mean, he's one of these guys. We talk all the time about Steve-O, don't we? As we should do, because he's a remarkable phenomenon. But Keith Barker's quite the phenomenon. You know, he's he could go down as one of the the better all-rounders never to get selected for England. He he hits a long ball.
0: He brought up his 4,000th first-class run and took his 400th first-class wicket in the same game a couple of years ago that I was covering, Mm. which stood out for consistency. And then last year pretty much won a game off his own bat at Lord's, so he's still going strong at about age 34.
1: And he's moved from Warwickshire to Hampshire. Yep. And he's getting plenty of opportunity there. If you're getting opportunity in an attack with Abbas and Abbott, you know, it's just going to extend your career, isn't it?
0: And one mention here for Tom Abel, the Somerset captain uh, who's been talked up as the England captain in some quarters at the moment, made one and four. We'll come back to England in a bit. A Belter of a game at Wontage Road. Uh, This was one of the draws, but uh, what a draw it was. The two promoted teams from 2019, so by way of background, they didn't count 2021 for promotion relegation. They couldn't count 2020 because of the truncated season and the Bob Willis Trophy. So they went all the way back to 2019, which is when Gloucestershire and Northance uh, made the jump back up into Division 1, and Nottinghamshire in turn in Division 2, much to their dismay. But, yeah, at Wantage Road, uh, Gloucestershire were sent in all out two two three. James Bracey, 117 of those who played test cricket briefly last year and couldn't, get the, couldn't hit the ball full stop. Well,
1: he's a man we're going to be keeping our eye on we are. a lot this year because very brief digression on Bracey. Please. Just before he played his test debut, he had gone to Crickviz, the best defensive record in England insofar as he didn't get out to straight balls right okay then he came into a test match where he was placed at number seven and asked to keep wicket in the hardest ground to keep wicket possibly in the world lords yeah i mean yeah. It, it is tough the way it swings after it's left the bat he didn't cover himself in glory no great surprise he's a man of like 22 years old and the england selectors have got him playing in an unfamiliar position doing an unfamiliar thing in the worst possible place to be doing it he missed a straight one he looked completely all at sea it was horrible to watch because I've heard incredible things about him. His chief exec, Will Brown at Gloucester, yep. spoke to him about three or four years ago. He said, we're not going to see much more of this lad. He's going to be away playing for England. If he can come back, and that's the thing that England have got to do. They've got to allow players to come back. We'll talk about that more later, I know. Uh, but it's—I it's, mean, to do that on that pitch early season, because I'm talking against myself a little bit, but Wanted Road is not an easy place to bat at the best of times. Wanted Road in April is a bit more tricky. It's a little bit more grass on there. It was a pitch that got better as the match went on. And he had gone to the worst of the conditions. And from all accounts, I saw a little bit of it, uh, a little bit of his innings. He was hitting the ball really
0: beautifully. Yeah, 52% of the runs there. So in Bannerman Stakes, not a long way away. 117 out of 223. So to press fast forward a bit here, to reply with 288. Then Gloss, after getting into early trouble, make three sixty three in the third innings. Ryan Higgins one hundred and thirty nine after mm. a forfer, and Tom Lace, seventy three, which won't be pretty hearing for Middlesex fans having lost both of those players in in recent seasons. So Northants is set two ninety nine on the final day in eighty two overs, and it is a thriller. So save Zabe, who was a teenage prodigy. He gets to 65. Rob Keogh, who made 100 in the first innings, 74. Josh Cobb, experienced veteran in that Northants changing room, 36. But then Higgins goes bang, bang. And from needing about 60-odd with five wickets in hand, mm-hmm. suddenly Gloucester are a couple of wickets away from pinching victory in the final over – I think Higgins dropped a catch off his own bowling, I read somewhere right. he did. in the final he, over he dropped, he
1: dropped a catch with three or four balls to go. Right. Quite a catchable one, around about knee height. I know this because I was listening. This was classic. So I got through to the... It was the last game mm. left playing. Mm. And I, I dipped in and out of it before. But there are few things more fun than a county game that's going all the way to the end. And you hear the county commentators and they're breathless. They're exhausted because these guys, you know, they are on for the full six hours mostly. There may be a third voice every now and then, but actually they're just kind of immersed in this game. They do more hard work on commentary than any others in cricket commentary circles in the world. And they were frazzled and they couldn't believe their eyes at what was happening because you were right. I think they needed 50 odd off about eight or nine overs with five wickets in hand bang bang
0: but they were going for it sometimes. oh they were going they, for it. they weren't shutting up
1: shop they were I going mean... for it 299 to win and they yeah. were like 230 35 235 240 odd for, for five and they only really shut up shop when they were eight down but even then they were already nearly nine down and the last guy due in is not the best bat as i recall okay I'm trying to remember who it was that was due in, but it was was a rabbit.
0: It was a genuine number 11. It
1: was a genuine number 11. So there was, you know, uh uh-oh, uh-oh. I think it might have been... Would it have been Ben Sanderson? I think it was Ben Sanderson. And Ben Sanderson is the guy that we saw... Of course, because we're we're we connected did. with him uh, back in from, Crookie's uh, match.
0: Back from uh, 2015, well, that goes back to 2015, wasn't it? Yeah, he 2015.
1: Weekends. And he, I think he I think he walked out to batten in a pair of black trainers and his shirt undone. You know, and it, <laughs> it was not an edifying sight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, they fell about 15 runs short, so I think that'll be the game that. It'll be the closest to a tie this year because really, I mean, you know, we we talk about all four results being possible till quite deep in a game. That was the epitome of this. The contrast was at Edgbaston, the worst draw of the lot, which rain-herded early on. Surrey made 428 across two days. Ben, folks, a timely unbeaten 132. Mm. Just when there are some murmurs that maybe they might move on, folks, because his batting's not good enough, well, peels off a ton to start the season. 58 from Ollie Pope as well as far as England calculations are concerned. Rory Burns made 41, and then he came off the field and did a post-game interview and suggested they play too much first-class cricket, should bring it back to 10 games. I'm not sure whether Burns was saying that 12 months ago when he relied upon that block of eight games at the start of the year yeah. to get himself back in the we test We got team.
1: multiple half-centuries, didn't he? And that he put did. him in really good form playing against New Zealand.
0: When he made 100 at Lord's. Because so. he also
1: said in that interview that he found it really difficult playing against India because by the time playing against India he'd had a huge block of T20 cricket so I don't know he's got yeah. to work and maybe what he means is if we could have five county championship matches leading up to the first test series and five leading up to the second that as we know is completely impractical oh, because
0: but there is definitely work to do on sequencing no question yeah. but just the, the, the premise yeah. that you know after one day we're talking about Mm. making the season 10 games already like normally it takes at least a few weeks for that sort of yeah. cynicism to see well,
1: through normally England have got to get bowled out for zip in the first test match that's
0: it then really? we can um, then we can get all morose around these types of things uh, Warwickshire replied with 531 summed up by the fact that the wicketkeeper at number 8 Michael Burr, just made 178 very slow runs and I think that um, they shook hands as early as they possibly could quick
1: quick one on that though because there was a game within a game there the ninth wicket went down at 400 and something it was still going to be a draw no doubt about it but Oliver Hanlon Dolby came out to bat, and I think Burgess was on about seventy-eight. And Hannan Dolby blocked the crap out of it. I think he was on nought off sixty-one balls. Oh
0: yes, that, that, I, I think and, I'm doing um, Burgess at a disservice there. It was the—I I thought he might have been the sixty odd balls to get off the mark.
1: No, he was—he no. well, he was going pretty slowly because he was just—he was playing for the draw. And then once they were nine down, he realised I haven't got much time here to get my hundred. Oliver Hanlon Dolby is not really renowned with the bat and uh OHD he just stuck around stuck around stuck around and then when Burgess got to his hundred it was brilliant because Alan Dolby turned to the cameras raised his arms in the air as if he had got it because <laughs> he had basically got his mate to a ton and then Burgess teed off after he got to his ton it was mayhem and Rory Burns came on to bowl and there's a great clip on social media of him coming in to bowl and then stopping and you that in itself is not funny what's funny is what you can't see on the camera which is that I was told this by Mark Church, who was commentating at the game. Jordan Clark absolutely pisses himself laughing because Burns has taken off the Alice band or whatever. Yep. The main is flowing back and forth. And Ben Folks has gone all the way back to the boundary because it's, you know, like, he's going to be bowling such wheels. <laughs> and it's just turned into an absurd giggle fest at this point. Of course, Kevin Peterson decided that this was emblematic of what's totally wrong with county cricket because... He's never seen stuff like that happen in a test match, of course. It would never happen in a test match. (laughs) But quite why Surrey would bowl any of their main bowlers when the game's meandering to a draw, I do not know. But it was a moment of levity. There was a little bit of that in those draws, the the Chelmsford one and the Edgbaston one. It was disappointment, really, because the game had started so brightly. 100 runs in the first session. Surrey had picked up four quick wickets when Warwickshire responded. But the pitch defeated them, apparently, got slower and easier and easier throughout.
0: And so Hampshire get the head start there with the only win in Division 1, quickly through Division 2. Another wonderful draw at Grace Road uh, where Worcestershire made 348 with uh, Brett De Oliveira the captain, making 118. Leicestershire look stuffed when they're all out for 213, well behind in the game. Worcestershire boss it in the second dig, they declare five down. They set the game up. They set uh, Leicestershire far more than they could possibly uh, expect to make across the fourth and final day. Ed Pollock, made Maiden Century for Worcester in the second inning. So they've got an entire day, 96 overs, to bowl to Leicestershire. And they have them 43 for two, 76 for four, 122 for seven. It is game over every day of the week from there. But Hassan Azad's still there, the opener, who made quite the impression... Last year Made a big hundred At at the Oval If I recall correctly And did some really quite Interesting interviews as well But nevertheless What hope has he got When they're 171 for 9 Which they were After 70.2 overs So they've still got Nearly 26 overs to face Most of a session On the final day and Outwalks Boyer and Hendricks The South African Overseas International The pro this year uh, There at Grace Road He's taken zero wickets For the match On debut. Had an absolute shocker but then he bats the whole way to the finish line. Hendricks faces 60 balls for 16. Hassan Azad has enough time to bring up a century, 104 not out from 280 deliveries. No other player made it out of the teens. Men everywhere. Magnificent finish. One of those classic draws where it's nine down and there are yep. nine catches. Fielders on their hands and knees and all the rest of it. And they split the points. So. A, a gutsy draw. We already talked about sort of the crazy draw at Wantage mm. Road. This was of the more gutsy variety where the number 10, make that the number 11, batted with the opener, who all but carried his bat, if if, uh, if Hendricks had been dismissed, he would have carried his bat, for an unbeaten 100, and they creeped to, to a draw. Well, Special stuff.
1: It's absolutely beautiful, especially for the first game of the season. And there were two moments of Vanamanish magic in that because there was Hassan Azad himself who looked like he... He was on the verge of Banner manning in a way. Certainly at 171 for nine. Yeah, true. But yeah. in the first innings, there was Bannermaning going left, right, and centre because Lewis Hill, at one point, I think, was on 74 out of 115 for a lot. 115 for yes. seven or so. Yes. And that looked like those were the circumstances because you have talked about the ideal circumstances for a Bannerman. Yeah, you get looked, out of the blocks. Possible. You get out of the blocks, and it's a collapse light. Correct. You're
0: relying on getting to being ahead of the number, yep. and then the ass falling out. What well, you can't you, you can't sustain it when a number nine, number ten, number eleven gets runs, yeah. they need to all get effectively naught.
1: That's right. Yeah. And he, and he, he looked on course for it, but unfortunately he was dismissed. But the, the, these are the excitements. This is what I mean about Christmas. I mean, because suddenly you've got <laughs> eight games in which different mad statistical oddities are taking place. All over the country.
0: Well, I'll give you another one at Cardiff, where it snowed and rained, and was a shocker. Um, the Glamorgan all out 234 across two days to start. Durham reply with 383. Alex Lees carried his bat for 182. That there, mm. there we talk about timely runs. The incumbent England opener coming home, big unbeaten. It's hard to drop Nothing him. Wrong Isn't that with that. But Andrew Salter was the seventh bowler used for Glamorgan. Usually, the opening bat. Bowls off spin. Seventh bowler used. Twelve overs. Seven for 45 to finish the innings. That's insane, isn't it? County cricket. You've got to love it. Oh, uh, Had Durham bowled out Glamorgan on on the fourth day, they, it might have got interesting, but they didn't. Uh, my game at Lord's threatened to explode a couple of times. All four results. Again, the cliche. We were on, were on the table with about an hour to go when the bell was rung. Good pitch. Really good pitch at Lords, which we didn't always sort of feel last year. I, I, I had great sympathy for the Lords ground staff because they've got like 70 days of cricket on mm-hmm. that square, and the amount of TLC that you referred to earlier to put into a county pitch, they just don't have the time for it. It's impossible. When no, trying you to- think
1: two test matches. I mean, I, I, it's, it's not just county and test matches and ODIs under 100. They played 100 there as well. 100, yeah. They even go all the way into mid to late September. And the yep. Village Cup final is on there.
0: I mean, there. The vi- and there's, there have been historically university games, Eaton Harrow, mm-hmm. lots of cricket that you that kind of goes under the radar, but is being played week in, week out at that ground. So the fact that Middlesex got to 401 in the absence of Peter Hanscom, who comes this week, Sam Robson, who's got a, a problematic thumb, Martin Anderson, the all-rounder, but it was Stevie Eskenazi making a ton, and Josh De Decares. Now... This is going to be someone who's watched very, very closely because of who his father is and who his great-grandfather is as well. He has got, um, you know, pedigree to say the least and he looked really good, sort of whisper it. He is a proper cricketer and wouldn't have played because he's – 19 and he's a student and he was available this week. If Sam Robson was available, the cares wouldn't have been a fixture in the first round. But instead, gets 80, lays a bit of a marker. Um, the next game that Middlesex play, will have Hanscom, we'll have Robson, we'll also have Shaheen Sharafridi, by the way. which Ooh, is a, a lip smacking, isn't it? Down there at Glamorgan. Derbyshire, who, who they were playing, uh, they were always going to be more interesting under Mickey Arthur. Who He was asked, why have you taken this job? And he said, why not? I love a challenge. And you know, we all have Dealt with Mickey over the years in his international jobs, and he always always got a smile on his face. He wears his emotions on his sleeve, and they batted commendably the first time around making 304. Sean Massoud, who was going to make like 2,000 runs in his division, piled off 91 of the easiest runs you'll see until <laughs> that man again, Josh DeCares, has him stumped with his part-time off-spin, so he does something else as well, the young fella. And anyway, the game looks like it was going to have the life sucked out of it until there was a collapse of four for none. And Middlesex mm. set the game up and uh, they had 356 to chase uh, in 88 overs and they were going for it until deep and then late wickets and they pulled out and it was a draw. But it was a worthwhile draw, I feel like, across the four days that you know everyone got plenty out of that game on a good pitch.
1: You sounded like you were having fun. I, yeah, I, I saw yeah. bits and bobs and it did,
0: yeah, it was a good contest, wasn't it? And the eighth and final game of the round before we move on to talk about international cricket. I was down at Hove for Finney's rebirth as a Sussex player. First of all, uh, the home side batted and made 375 with a Tom Clark ton. Uh, Patterson White for Notts, noteworthy figures. 45 overs, eight maidens, five for 84. So good start to the season there. Then Notts went huge and made 534. But not before Finney uh, nicked off Hasiba Mead for five and Joe Clark for six. Took three wickets. Yeah, Back leading the attack. I it's mean, coming uh, out nicely,
1: you know. So um, people are saying. Yeah, I've, I've seen a bit. And uh, he looked in pretty good rhythm. And actually, there's no way they should have lost that game. Because Stephen Mullaney scored 192. He was dropped on 40. I think he was dropped on 80. Both very, very catchable chances. And they just got too far ahead. And you know, this, it's so weird sometimes. doesn't matter how good the pitch is. If you've been fielding for the better part of 150, 160 overs, you go out to bat, even on the flattest decks, your head's not there. You're exhausted. It was very cold. There was a, a storm brewing just in the South Channel. There was thought that it might get snowed off at one point, but it just stayed away. And it was bitterly, bitterly cold for a lot of the players. And then they, they just collapsed hideously on that last day. Yeah, and, and as you
0: say, it can happen with scoreboard pressure as well, can't it? They were so far behind in the game. And, yeah, Sussex all out 172. So... Yeah, wickets galore uh, for the visitors, uh, which means that Nottinghamshire, who are favoured uh, to win Division 2, are the only team that get a win out of that pool in week one they chased the 14 runs they needed for victory in 2.1 overs to win the game by 10 wickets now first thing is we dismount we're not going to spend half an hour going through every county game each week on the final word this is merely because of the excitement of opening weekend we thought it was worth just getting into the spirit of things and, and citing a few names to watch through the year and all the rest of it so we'll dip in and out each week or every couple of weeks but don't expect the silver service if you're a county fan that we're giving you today but in your presence as I mentioned before I thought it would be negative. Negligent not to go deep there.
1: Thank you. And there are there are lovely names I think they'll crop up through the season. Obviously, we will be looking at Critchers. We'll be looking at Azad, Hassan Azad. And it's always quite fun looking at the old timers. I mean Gareth Berg, we didn't really touch on there, but he's yeah. like he's well over forty. I think
0: he's forty two. He's opening the bowling for Italy. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you love this, don't you? These guys who play mm. in the championship but also play for different European countries.
1: And still going, they still want to do it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't see them as bed blockers at all. I see them as as having a, a genuine love for this game, which is so frequently traduced, as you said, right at the start of, of the season. Oh God, County Cricket is in a dreadful oh, state. Oh no, it's not, the ECB yeah.
0: have got some conspiracy. They're not tweeting enough from their corporate account where they put out press releases about their sponsors. Let's forget about the extraordinary following they have on social media on all of the E C B ran and operated county cricket accounts. Anyway, I mean, some of this stuff just sends me batty. It's like we spend all of this time talking about how we want to see the championship improve and how we want to see more people watch it, more people follow it. And those who are closest to the flame can't spend enough time talking about how how fucked over it is. I'm like
1: perfection uh, is the enemy of the good, isn't it? it Very much so. Uh,
0: speaking of people who love the game, Anderson and Broad, uh, James and Stuart, uh, in that Nottinghamshire win, Broad didn't play and Jimmy won't play for Lanks this week either, which is not unusual. They, they tend to manage their, their season with England considerations. They tend to play like four of the first six or yeah. five of the first seven or something like that. So that's not unusual that they would miss their first well, fixtures of the year.
1: It's not unusual if we're expecting them to play for England. It's deeply unusual if we're not, we're not sure. Yeah. yeah.
0: And J- Jimmy said on the Tail Lenders podcast that he bowled outside for the first time after a breather last week. So that, that's fine. So no, nothing to see here on that front that Broad didn't play and that, and that Anderson won't play this week. What's far more interesting is the, the commentary that, that Anderson offered at the Lancashire Media Day yesterday. He said he's had no conversation with anyone from the England set up since that five-minute call to tell him he was dropped before the West Indies. That's, what, two months ago? At least. Maybe more than two months ago. And this isn't about courtesy. This is just simply about...
1: Management. Management. These guys are on central contracts. Exactly. I mean, if they are your employee, employee, you know, I mean, I'm not employed by the BBC. I'm a freelancer, but I'm in pretty regular contact with my producer in the lead up to the season. You know, what games might I be doing? Can I start to fill in my diary? You know, I'm probably in contact with him twice a week. Yeah. And like I say, I am not employed by the BBC. Yeah, how
0: can a quarter of the year go by near enough to I, that with two f- of the most, you know, seasoned cricketers England have ever had? I mean, Anderson's played more Test matches than anyone now has, anyone and they're near not enough? cheap resources.
1: I mean, no, yeah. th- th- and, and this isn't me having a go at them getting paid money, but it, it's like how are you managing your your just your HR if you've got these guys and for three months? You, know, putting money into a bank account, but they have no idea what it, what
0: their expectations are. You yeah, know, what yeah. what's
1: their service level agreement
0: with the ECB? Well, it just feels like this is a uh, symbolic of where the England test team specifically are at right now. I mean, how Joe Root is still in that job, and it's no reflection on Joe Root, the human being uh-huh. or or the extraordinarily high degree of difficulty on his job especially over the last 12 to 24 months with all the bubbles and all the touring and all the rest of it. But it was taken as assumed that after the Ashes they would move on from Joe and we were surprised when that wasn't the case. And it feels to me like there isn't going to be a change. I mean, it feels like Joe Root will captain through the summer and so it goes. And and if they've got that level of uncertainty around the captain I can kind of see how Anderson abroad they're keeping tabs of them effectively on Instagram I mean this Hmm. is the they've got so many they're putting out spot fires everywhere right now and they're under so much pressure that yeah it is strange to me that there are these two champions of the game and they seemingly are none the wiser as to whether they're in England's plans this year
1: they're also they're allowing in this vacuum certain murmurs to be had which are not being just adequately wiped out so people are speculating as to whether the words that joe root said about the advances that have been made in the west indies around attitude were in some way a dig at anderson and broad and how difficult it was to captain them so obviously at the media day james anderson is asked these questions are you difficult to captain your problem now of course he's going to bridle at that and say well I don't think I am. I've played 150-odd test matches yeah, and I've yeah. done this and the other. Now, this isn't healthy because there's every chance they're going to have to come back into the side. And if they do come back into the side, they come back into the side wondering whether they weren't wanted because they're, you know, because their captain doesn't want them. And now I, I'm speculating entirely because I don't know. But the fact is that that speculation is being allowed to happen because of the way... Anderson and Broad are being currently handled because well, the wheels they are, are turning
0: so a- slowly. I mean, we're hearing mm. about there being a, a new director of cricket being hired at some point, but do we know a time frame on that? Well, Let they've got they've got,
1: a, they've got to hire the chief operating officer or the chairman and the uh, yeah, chief yeah executive I mean, and all yeah, that. There's
0: so much going on, and yeah, where there's the, the 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 sharp point of this, the the thin edge of this is the is the England men's test team where there is so much confusion at the moment. I mean, yeah, that bigger picture question, how is it possible that Rude is still the captain? I do feel for him, but in the absence of a credible alternative. There's this great piece in The Times today by Steve James that I I know you read as well about sort of the great Red Bull reset and going through the need for it and what it actually means and how did it get to this point? And there's that sort of that great stat about how no player other than Rory Burns has averaged more than 30 upon arriving in the England team since 2015 – That is scandalous as a stat. But Mm. as Paul Farbrace, the former assistant coach, says in the piece, maybe they had players that might have kicked on, but after a season or a series, they're dispensed with.
1: James Vince was an example that James uh, Vince, Sam
0: Robson, Adam Mm. Lythe. I mean, um, to an extent, Nick Compton, the second version of Nick Compton when he returned. You can always make a case for them to be replaced. You can always make a case for a player not making runs to be dumped. Sure, Mark Stoneman's another. Um, But there's another argument too that occasionally you need to accept that a low run of scores early on in the career is the investment for better returns later on and always turning to the shiny new toy and having done it so often. And then the next layer of this is the, 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 the domestic game in England right now There's an excellent contribution in this piece by Daryl Mitchell, the former Worcestershire captain, former chairman of the PCA who retired at the end of last season and had played 20-odd years of professional cricket. And he explained how the game has changed for batters who play county cricket. He's like, well, the main difference is of the wobble seam ball, historically, as he explained... The bog-standard county bowler would move the ball one way or the other and you would be able to let a lot of balls go based on what they did, their natural arc, if you like. Mm -hmm. And since the wobble seam has come into effect on England pitches, it has necessitated batsmen jumping more across to the off stump, which, again, I don't feel qualified going into great depth about the technical side of this, but if people like Mark Butcher and Mike Atherton and Nassa Hussain are saying they think they're detecting this as a problem, it's probably a problem in what, what they're seeing at domestic cricket where they are trying to neutralise the threat of the wobble seam by getting as far across as they can and it's proving not only problematic to to make bulk runs as four-day players but even harder again to make the step up to test cricket where that's not sustainable.
1: To be clear, it's because the wobble seam is coming back in off the pitch if, yeah. it's, if it's in the right bit of the seam on the right bit of the pitch and so if you can get yourself outside off stump then when it does clatter into your pad you're not going to be out because you're playing a shot outside off.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Which is, which is an understandable theory, but we saw it taken to such ludicrous extremes by possibly the most talented young batter that England's produced since Joe Root, Ollie Pope, when he found himself in the ashes standing outside off stump and then getting yeah. bowled behind his legs middle stump. Now, I, I asked Mark Church to keep an eye on, on Popey. He said that uh, it, he, hadn't, he hadn't moved all the way back to where you might like him, like middle and leg or middle with a more, more conventional guard. He was still standing around in the middle and off, but the difference was that he was standing stock still at this point. So, you know, that's some kind of an advance. But it, it's true. I, what I don't quite understand is why the wobble seam hasn't had the same effect on batters from overseas. So England's bowlers employ the wobble seam. James Anderson is a great proponent of it, Yep, as is... Ollie Robinson, Ollie most Robinson, bowls
0: it, yeah, as well as anybody.
1: A classic, you know, learning from county cricket, learning that wobble seam ball, getting lots of people out, trapped LBW—that's his shtick. But for some reason, overseas batters are not feeling the need to counter it by going quite so far over,
0: and they're not moving. Well, maybe there is some groupthink at play here. Like you, kind mm. of over time, you, you start to think, that, well, how are we going to? You know, how are we going to get get away with playing?" We use Darren Stevens as the example all the time, but Darren Stevens, or, or Tim Murta or, or Chris Rushworth, or others who who bowl at a, at a mm. county pace that
1: and Ollie Roberts, Ollie Robinson yeah. as
0: well, yeah, yeah who, who yeah. was who was a, a yard quicker, but but still nowhere near as mm. quick as uh, an out and out. Um, we'll put it this way Ollie Robinson wouldn't get a game for Australia no he gets a game for England because of the conditions that, uh, that that he plays in half the time at home which informs and he's a good cricketer I'm not saying that he shouldn't be playing test cricket his fitness will dictate whether he takes the next step but yeah this article that, that JMO wrote there's other bits in here around the price signals around money the amount of money you get being a, a professional cricketer Playing in the championship against what you get by obtaining an, an NOC, to a, a no objection certificate, to play in a T10 somewhere or a T20 offshore during the winter. I mean, it'd be madness if you were a, a player developing to not see that as your most credible route to financial security. Why would you hedge your bets uh, the other way and think well I'm I'm, I'm going to try and get a central contract and play test cricket for England when there are 11 spots for England when there are hundreds and hundreds literally of mm-hmm. high paying white ball spots around the world in myriad competitions so if you're a kid coming through maybe you've come through the England pathway, you've been in the England 19s, white ball competition you know you, you've you been through um, all of the different pathways at the county level and then you, you, you take Will Smead Will Smith, who went to the PSL you know he's 20 21, yeah. barely even in the first-class team, yep. and twatting runs for laughs in the PSL on television. He'll make far more money and have far more security as a, as a long-term prospect, just doubling down on that. It might well be that England lose Will Smead as a prospective Test player. I haven't seen enough of him to know. But it's more that at that formative stage, when you're making big decisions about what sort of cricketer you are going to be, it's hard to justify going the route of Test cricket unless you have got a game that's only – viable to be played against the red ball like say dom sibley
1: i guess so i guess the what english cricket's got to work out though is how it can replicate the successes that we see from indian batters australian batters new zealand batters who devon conway made his name really in england in t20 to start with he did smashing a ball to all parts and yet his test match technique is perfect now is it the case that wobble seam bowlers have destroyed techniques i mean I, that seems crazy to me you look at the the indians who prosper with both red and white ball their techniques are pretty much the same they're they're, they're also pretty classical in actual yeah, fact yeah. there's nothing to nothing too tricky and look going and they've on. been
0: playing and and they've rohit been sharma, incentivized to play
1: ipl for a generation rohit sharma and ajinkya rahane i may have mentioned this to you before the lords test match last year they were sent yep. in to bat on a green top like absolutely classic English conditions against some pretty classic English bowlers as well, one of whom I believe was Ollie Robinson, who was bowling wobble seam and making it awkward. They batted the entire session for 55, 56 runs, mm-hmm. 56 for none at lunch. And these are the self-same guys who are opening the batting for IPL franchises. Rohit Sharma is one of the most destructive white ball cricketers around. So it, it can't just be a simple case that having one set of conditions breeds players who play like that it has to be in the coaching people should be able to walk and chew gum i mean the great thing that professional cricketers have nowadays which they didn't have years and years ago is they've got video they've got a whole raft of coaches they've got personalized programs that work for them i'm not sure that the coaches are actually tailoring the games ollie pope said to me a few years back He'd been playing the T20 Blast, and the T20 Blast had this one week off when they wouldn't do a four-day game. So they played like half the T20 Blast, then one round of county championship matches, utterly stupid, incidentally, in late June, then back to T20 Blast. And Popey said to me, when I interviewed him after he got 100, he was still really annoyed about how he got out in the first innings because he was still had his white ball set up. And he told himself before he went out to bat, remember, he's playing red ball, you've got to move, shift across a bit. And he said, I forgot to do it, and I nicked off. Well, I this is really always angry. the argument
0: for playing it in blocks, isn't it? That when you chop and change between formats... Which was
1: Rory Burns' point.
0: Yeah, and, and, and which they, they made yeah. a blue last year, playing uh, two county rounds in the middle of the season, in the mm. middle of the blast, which you know hopefully won't be the case again. But the old days of uh, you know driving down the motorway to play a, a Sunday league game before resuming your four-day game resuming. somewhere else.
1: Oh, yeah, not out 72 overnight in a red ball game. Yeah Drive 200 uh, miles For a 40 over game Then drive back And resume your red ball Innings the next day Insane
0: Yeah yeah. totally over aren't they And and that's why in Australia You just don't see that at all So they are blocked And maybe you could look To Australia in this respect Where they do have A number of players Who seemingly have been able To make the transition (laughs) Back and forth between uh, The formats of the game The good thing in all of this Is that per Daryl Mitchell uh, in, In Steve James's piece 49 of 50 players surveyed By the PCA 49 of 50 said they viewed Test cricket as the pinnacle So philosophically the players are with us it's whether economically we can keep them with us and by us I mean mm. anybody who wants to see red ball cricket continue to, to thrive into the future
1: West Indies has been the kind of paradigm of that concern for a long time because a lot of their players who are good potentially good test match players Chris Gale for example he played a lot of test cricket and then devoted the last 10 years of his career really to white ball dwayne bravo uh shimron Hetmeyer, we yep. barely see that's the kind of concern but you know the english cricket Board is very different from the west indies cricket board it's got a lot of money and it can incentivize people to play test cricket and if you have more red ball contracts rather than fewer so that you're essentially paying for lions players as well then it starts to become a bit more of a viable option, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, and I've said before, you know, when Mohammed Siraj became an overnight sensation a couple of years ago, yeah, an overnight sensation who had taken 70 wickets for India A at first-class level because India A, tour of the world, they're constant tourists and maybe post-pandemic that'll be where we get to with the Lions travelling to Australia each year and, and there being some reciprocity with the Australia A team coming out to England and playing, I don't know, a dozen counties or or some version of that there there must be a a better way than sort of ad hoc tours every four or five years just to go full circle back to anderson and broad and and the england captaincy i banged away about this with jeff a couple of weeks ago and and would value your your thoughts on this i just don't see a viable alternative to root other than broad and anderson I don't see anyone in that top seven, or the, you know, any batter for England right now, or even players outside of it. I offhandedly joked around Tom Abel only because Twitter mm. seems to be fascinated by that. Or, or Rory, Sam,
1: Rory Burns was mentioned because he captained Surrey. Rory Burns because
0: he captain Surrey. Sam Billings because he's a sensible young man who mm. played. Uh, a test match in Hobart and generally a very likeable, sound boy. guy yep. but as Mike Atherton pointed out on our SEN commentary uh, during uh, the Australian summer, are you seriously going to ask a guy to captain England with no experience in Test cricket other than one week in Hobart, three days in Hobart. I mean, the same goes for any of those players. There's the Lee Jamon example yep. from New Zealand way back when. But, but
1: that that would speak badly to England, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it because, because basically Lee Jamon came into a struggling side in a, in a country that doesn't expect to do terribly well at Test cricket. If England need a Lee German solution... Well, something's
0: gone terribly something's wrong. Gone Chris Cowdrey or some version of that. Yeah. Now, you know, the way I see it is that if you accept that limitation, that there is no one in England's top seven, and you might say Ben Stokes. Some might say be screaming at their speaker saying, what about Ben Stokes? Why are you ruling him out? It's not that Ben Stokes can't do the job. The question is whether you should ask him to do the job, whether he should be. There's two points to this. Whether he should be looked after. I mean, remember, he missed much of last season on the front foot saying that he needed to be away from mm. cricket. You know. and,
1: and, it, and it came straight after he'd captained Basically, an England D team to victory in one day's nationals. Now, he captured he, he the side well, insofar as, as they won, but his performances were pretty. Pretty That's average. Right. He looked jaded. You're asking
0: the all-rounder who plays all three formats. Who, by mm. the way, is loose as on social media. Some of that Instagram stuff. He put, he'll get you get away with that when you're Ben Stokes, member of the ranks. You don't get away with some of the shit he does on socials if you are the captain. There's another layer here too. There's the, the, the I the, need the to Joe be scored on that. I don't know what well, he the, does. The on fact Instagram. that Joe Root is a is a very um, you know a, a very presentable. Uh, yes, you know, it, a, Cup. it doesn't hurt the situation. Yep. Well, my answer to this is is Anderson abroad. And a caretaker captaincy to get through one summer and one summer only and provide some... Take the pressure off the top six, top seven, whoever they may be,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. including, you know, your Matt Critchley's of the world, whoever else, all of them will be there for the summer. There are seven test matches to be played here this year, three against New Zealand, one against India, three against South Africa, and deal with that bigger problem about who replaces Root full-time down the road a bit. Kick the can down the road. It can be almost a parting gift from Broad slash Anderson to English cricket and at the same time a gift to them uh, before they probably retire at the end of the summer.
1: Well, Broad makes sense. I'm not convinced they will retire at the end of the summer if they play this summer because I'm, I'm kind of convinced that they both of them like a last home ashes hurrah. Whether they get that or not, I don't know. But right. Broad has already captained at England side. He's captain of the T20 team some years back. Anderson's
0: been vice captain uh, under Root initially.
1: Exactly. I I think it's. And the uh, reason
0: I say both of them, sorry, by the way, is just that you accept that Broad won't play every game. So when Broad can't play, Anderson plays. And I'm not saying this is ideal, by the way. Far from it. it. It is just the, to my way of thinking, a. It's a stop the flow of blood. Like this this is a fucking shambles at the moment across oh, the, the board.
1: The, the chaos is is palpable. You talk yeah. to anybody involved in, in English cricket as a journalist, and I have never sensed quite so much a degree of trepidation leading up into a summer. I mean, I remember as a youngster there was an acceptance that when the West Indies came over in 1984 and 1988 that England would have a bad summer. <laughs> yes. Of course. But that was in large part because the West Indies was so fantastic. Any other country was coming, like 1989 when Australia came over, England expected to win. The fact they got thrashed and humiliated, actually and used so many players, is another matter. That's about complacency. It's not seeing the wood for the trees, not understanding what's going on around you. But there was an expectation that England would do well. I've never felt that with New Zealand coming and South Africa, and England have very good series against South Africa as a general rule. Um... They've had a very good series against New Zealand recently, as a general rule. But I hear people catastrophizing and saying, you know, if the weather holds, they could lose all seven home <laughs> tests. Now, th- this is this is obviously... I mean, they won't
0: because it's England and they'll, they'll yeah, have good days. And especially exactly. if they actually play Anderson and Broaden. Exactly. And the experience this, works. They win a
1: toss in the right place. We saw yeah. how they skittled India headingly last year. There are enough good players for that not to happen. But the fact that people can be thinking in those terms... It's partly about catastrophisation anyway after an Ashes tour that's gone really badly. But there's also that sense that you can't piece your team together because you you can't understand who who were the 11 you won in it, in actual fact. And, And that is a big issue. Now, I mean, I think if everybody takes a step back and says to themselves, reminds themselves that actually you win test matches by taking 20 wickets, there's a lot of focus on what's wrong with the batting. But actually... England's problems away have been a failure to take 20 wickets in away test matches yes and in English conditions if they focus on taking those 20 wickets if they can get Ollie Robinson fit if they pick Chris Wokes on the right pitches at the right times he has a tremendous record in England if they rotate Anderson and Broad they can win games of cricket with what looks like their bowling attack for the last couple of years in actual fact but they don't want to do that because they're forever planning for the next stage. Now, that... Well, you know what they're going to do. Don't plan until you've got a team to plan with. You, yeah, know?
0: you know what they'll end up doing. It'll just be Joe Root leading the team.
1: I think it's probably true.
0: It's, yeah. it, they'll just go, we've got... There's no, there's no choice. There'll be They'll be choice paralysis to an extent because, yeah. well, the opposite of choice paralysis in a way. But it's not like they've got... It, it, they could pick any... They could pick a name out of the bloody hat if it's not mm. Root. So, yeah, I think the creative option would be to... To try and draw down on their experience but in all probability the status quo will prevail you mentioned contracts before uh mm. moving to australia the, the, the national contracts came out this week and there was less of a uh, less of an uproar as there was 12 months ago 12 months ago they issued 17 contracts and only three specialist batsmen uh, were named in the 17 bit different this year because well they've won the world cup they've won the ashes They've won in Pakistan. In the uh, last MOU, it's anywhere between 17 and 20 can be handed out. Even 20 feels like a pretty low number when you consider how much international cricket Australia play across the formats. But uh, with um, a tour to Sri Lanka coming up in the next 12 months, India as well, home series against... Uh, South Africa and the West Indies, a home T20 World Cup. They're the kind of high points of the of the next 12 months in the calendar, which has meant they've uh, been able to go a bit heavier on spin and a bit less deep on pace. So Joe Richardson, interestingly, doesn't get a national contract. The last time he played for Australia, he bowled them to victory in an Adelaide Test match against England.
1: I'm quite baffled by that. I don't know how he can't make it to a central contract. I can see how he doesn't always necessarily get picked in Australia's best team. But uh, yeah, I, I found that a bit head-scratching. It,
0: it feels a bit to do with the fact that they need to find room for the white ball pros, right? The white ball specialists who are no chance of playing but got, test cricket like but Zampa, Stoinis, Maxwell. I'm not saying they shouldn't get a chance to play test cricket, but...
1: Scotty Boland's got in there with a central contract. Scott
0: Boland has a central contract. I suppose that's recognition for the summer that he had. Um, yeah. Although if it were me, I'd be sending Scott Boland off to play at Worcester for two years and I wouldn't bother about... I mean, I'd say, Scott, thanks for your service. We'll Ooh. catch you at the first test at Edgbaston against England in exactly. eight month's time. You, know, like, <laughs> exactly. you are not required until then. <laughs> you do not need to be a net bowler in Sri Lanka. It's cool. Play for Victoria. Play for a county. Get used to bowling with the Dukes. We'll catch yeah. you against England where you have this psychological hold over them. But yeah, national R-
1: Richardson, you kind of feel, is a bowler that could be developed. And he's got yeah. raw pace. He moves the ball. Um, yeah, I was surprised by that.
0: No Marcus Harris. That's stiff. Mm. That is super stiff. I mean, I know he didn't pull up trees, as you say over here in the ashes, but like that half century at Melbourne was the highest score in the match. He was squeezed out for Usman Khawaja. They've said on the record repeatedly they see Marcus Harris as their long-term opener, but he'll have to get there incrementally, which you can do, by the way. If you play three test matches, that gets you a a contract uh, by extension. Michael Neese is also off the list. Staying with the Australian team, Ben Horn reported today that Andrew McDonald will be offered the job full-time. Across the formats, interestingly. Across all three. Across all three mm. formats, which is not what we were anticipating. Uh, McDonald would have it in his contract so that the report goes to to miss tours as and when in a slightly more organised way than I think it's been in the past. It's felt historically that it's like, oh, you're Nacoday. you Okay, you can miss a one-day tour somewhere where they'll kind of map it out more strategically. But you know, I thought back to... The first time I had anything to do with Andrew McDonald, I spent a couple of hours with him at Grace Road when he was coaching Leicestershire back in, gosh, 2016 it would have been. I think that's right, maybe 2017. No, it was 2016. And he's a very very welcoming, very interesting, very interested, humble kind of personality. You can see why the players are drawn to him. And having orchestrated the win in Pakistan, having stuck to their plans and having worked... Uh, it stands to reason that... And they only interviewed him late. They didn't um, they didn't sort of get in his head and go through the inevitable PowerPoint presentations and whatever in the middle of the test series. They, they waited until the white ball bit to deal with that. And according to Ben Horn, uh, it'll be Andrew McDonald. And that feels to me like a, a shrewd bit of business.
1: It does. It's also that interesting pattern you see developing in international cricket coaching. Same thing happens in England a lot of the time when you move from... Sort of martinet to nice guy. I mean, you remember George De famous line about uh, about Bayliss Trevor Bayliss that um, that he was he was there to create a nice atmosphere. And he said, "Well, in that case, why don't we just?" Um, why don't we just get a yucca plant, a yucca plant and yeah. some <laughs> and some scented candles? I think didn't, and, and didn't press
0: didn't we didn't we give him some scented candles and a yucca plant when he finished yes, the job? Yes,
1: that's absolutely right. And he took it in great grace. I mean, yeah. He was a, he was yeah. a lovely, lovely guy. He still is, of course, Trevor Bayliss. But you know, before that, there had been a kind of like a firebrand, and then they moved to this, yeah. and then they yeah. want to come back out. You know. And people are calling myself included, slightly flippantly, feel like Malcolm Tucker to come in from the thick of it uh, to to coach England uh, because that's sort of like that, that's like the exact opposite of Chris Silverwood, He'd you be, know. Uh, <laughs> it'd, it'd,
0: be, it'd be the fourth thing he's chasing. Be like, it's on, it's on, <laughs> like that Pat thong. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So, um, and you see seeing the same sort of pattern happening here in Australian cricket, isn't it? Like, you know, the, like the perception of Mickey Arthur and Hope Workgate and what have you, and then Darren Lehman making everything so much more soft and fluffy, and then Justin Langer kicking over bins and being really intense, and now Andrew McDonald. And I guess this is actually a function of, of top-level sport. It's because the atmosphere that players are in can only really work for an amount of time you know before that it just does need to be shifted
0: yeah it feels like a leadership axis thing as well like with with lehman it was clark and that worked mm. and then into the smith era but it seemed to especially work with clark it's what he wanted and then there was the the era with langer and Payne, who both kind of came in as wartime leaders effectively yeah. to what have happened in cape town and then there was a once you got beyond that crisis point and there was another crisis that saw Payne deposed but with Cummins in the role... Worldly, sensible, educated, blah 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 Mm. blah. That it kind of stands to reason that he would want someone like Andrew McDonald by his side for this next stretch of however many years it is. I'm not sure how long the contract will be, but let's assume Pat Cummins. If you work on conventional cycles, has you know somewhere between three to five years in him as captain. That tends to be roughly how long a coach stays at it. And if they can form a a bond at the top there in the way that someone like Owen Morgan did with Trevor Bayliss, then um, good times ahead for Australia. They're, They're laying the foundation. I mean. You know, I think they're going to be the best team in the world again sooner rather than later. Yeah,
1: um, I mean, India can, will always be the big. The yeah. big issue, just for the sheer quantity of players, but I yeah, I think so.
0: It's going to be yeah. it's going to be fun. I think watching India and Australia play each other, yeah, because I think they are the standout two best teams across those the will be the marquee right series. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. where England fit in with their with their white ball uh, explosiveness, I suppose we'll see uh, when they go to India next year and and try and defend uh, their World Cup. But that's still a ways away, about eighteen months away. Speaking of England coaches, uh, Chris Silverwood has found himself in the Sri Lanka gig. It's often the way, isn't it, that we see someone bob up in Sri Lanka having Mm. been uh, coaching somewhere else or or replaced somewhere else. I mean, I know Mickey Arthur came there after he finished with Pakistan, didn't he? And that's a job that Trevor Bayless had historically when he left New South Wales. I think he next went to Sri Lanka. Interesting that Bayless isn't the white ball Australian coach as as an aside. Tom Moody, is he? um, Tom Moody's going to. Now, Tom Moody is the big boss and he's trying to fix up Sri Lankan cricket. He's got a you know blank, yeah. blank piece he knows of paper it inside out as well yeah really. he's been given the blank piece of paper fixed flunk and cricket and he's got got silverwood in so a bit of a, a watch this space on that front let's stay in the subcontinent to the IPL now Daniel I have to admit because I was at Lords for four days and before that as you know I was trying to um, not do a, a tremendous amount in the previous fortnight I've watched zero balls of the IPL Oh, you're missing out. I, I just haven't had, the, haven't had the space for it. But what I do know is that Ashwin, bless him, the man who should be running world cricket one day, forget about national teams, has retired himself out as a, a moment in time. It'll, it'll stand out because I'm sure it'll be the first of many.
1: It was a sensational moment. Uh, sensational because we've been waiting for this to happen for a long time. Yes, You know, T20 has become a kind of technocrat sport. And, you know, we know many people involved in cricket, you know, the the young guns, the likes of Ben Jones and and Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde, and they have consistently tried to argue that T20 cricket is a very technical game and that we need to give it an awful lot more respect. And they're right. Um, It has a repeatable structure and all sorts. But what hasn't happened is no one has retired out. Now, there have been so many times and it seemed like the obvious thing to do, like the last ball of an innings the non-striker for example might not be the quickest runner between the wickets mm-hmm. so just retire him out and whoever's left who's the quickest runner Send yeah. them out there. Send to run. out Carl Lewis to be the non striker. You yeah. know, to get an extra run. I mean, these are, and, and given the fine margins, maybe in they should 30. actually
0: have that provision yeah. to have in the dressing have like room, like a, a super, super, a super, super sub. sub. <laughs> have, a, have a have an Olympic sprinter to bring in just to run between the oh, wickets. Johan, Johan Blake, Johan, Blake, Johan is Blake is the obvious obvious yeah. answer. Yeah. Uh, and yet we have not seen fresh it. tactical dimension, wasn't it, for the hundred? There's your yeah. fucking fresh
1: tactical dimension. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, and and I'm I am all for it. Um, and I'm all for it also because of just how annoyed some people seem to get. Stephen Fleming, not you know Stephen Fleming never gets super annoyed because he's a he's a relaxed kind of guy, but he seemed to think that there was something slightly wrong about the idea of somebody being retired out. you know you you have to struggle through the times you've got to like and if you're not banning very well, then you're not banning very well, but tough titty, you've just got to keep going. The podcast I did with Stephen Finn yesterday. He's saying, no, 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 it's just, it's wrong. You know, the, the batter's there. He's got, you, they've got to get out. They've got to actually get out. I said Well, if that's the case, all you're going to actually do is get this batter to just stand outside of his ground, r- run needlessly. Um, is, is this a more edifying spectacle uh, than well, actually just hauling him off?
0: I, I think I'm seeing it, well, if you're a bowler or a Steve, Stephen Fleming, great captain, Finney hmm. bowler, They would both be thinking, putting themselves in the shoes of the fielding team, when you can strategically manage it to keep the struggling batter out there as long as you can. Like trying to keep them on strike Mm. or trying not to dismiss them, as you'll sometimes see in in limited overs cricket, where they want to keep a player out there. So they might be seeing it through that filter. Personally... I think it's fine. I mean, I think it's fun. It's in the laws of the game. We've seen it before. I mean, I've seen it in club cricket. We've seen it um first-class cricket, a game that you and I did yep. uh, when we first worked together in 2015 at Canterbury where Australia retired out, Chris Rogers and Steve Smith against Kent because they wanted to give other players a chance. That wasn't a warm-up game. That was a first-class game yep. where they were 100 retired out. Yep. Unusual as it is, but, you know, it's not without precedent. It it
1: happens. And cricket is the only sport that I can think of where people are admonished for behaving within the laws of the game. Yeah, And R. Ashwin is a man who, he clearly could be a first-class umpire immediately because he knows all the laws. And he's also got a brain that's thinking, what's best for my team? Now, I'm going to give you the precise circumstances because it did kind of work. Now, Ashwin came out to bat at 67 for four came up at number six, right? Because they're, they're trying to, I think, give Piram Garg, Pr- 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 is it? I, I, I forget. Um, it was due in, would have ordinarily come in at that point. But right. having lost four wickets early, they thought, right, we need to do a rebuilding job. So Ashwin does this rebuilding job. They put on 68, he and Shimron Hetmeyer in what nine and a half overs. So there's now 10 balls left. And he's now going risk-reward. He's going, I'm not going to clear the boundaries as Mm. well as these other guys. So, you know, they managed to get, as a result of this, 30 runs in their last 10 balls. Now, this is, it worked. It worked, yeah. It's a tactical dimension that works. So we're going to see teams do it more often. I would like to think so.
0: Because we, we saw, you know, Ashwin was, who ran out Josh Butler the non strikers end a couple of years ago. Yeah. We thought that might set off a proliferation of mancads, and it didn't. No, because I think. Because people sort of, because Ashwin was admonished. Mm. I wonder whether, because there's been, has there been backlash? There's I sense I sense there's been some backlash.
1: There's been a bit of backlash, but the backlash is so formless. Because it's sort of screaming into the void. You know, if they want to change the laws, change the laws. But there isn't anything against the spirit of cricket. In fact, you know, what you're saying is, I'm not good enough, just I'm out. So, like, you're giving the fielding team a wicket. I mean, it's just, just no way you can look at this and think, that is poor behaviour. The alternative would be that, you know, you lose a ball because when he's next on strike, he just deliberately treads on his stumps. But do we
0: want to see that more?
1: Or, like I say...
0: Yeah, do we want to see simply, players comically simply, get themselves out in comical fashion? Yeah, I've run seen, out, yeah, I've you know, seen,
1: standing um, in the middle of the pitch. <laughs> yeah, go, which, which, then,
0: which then brings in questions of integrity on the other side of the equation. When you see players who look to be getting out intentionally, yes. it's a dreadful look when you know full well that people are trading gazillion dollars on these games and it looks like there's, there's issues with...
1: Well, you could also get into a complete standoff, because, of course, if they refuse to run somebody out, then Ashwin can start running right yeah do you see what i mean yeah and then his batting partner can get like sort of level with him and then they play a hokey cokey so which way are you gonna go and then they're standing there like waiting are you gonna throw it to this end or that end it can descend to fast
0: it can descend to fast now this
1: means it doesn't descend to fast
0: i I saw ben jones and you're right with the with the sort of t20 thing because we've had them all on the show matt roller ben jones Mm. you know Wigmore. they've all been part of the final word and tried to make Jeff and me smarter on these matters because we freely admit that we don't know anywhere near enough mm-hmm. about T20 as we might if we were invested in it as much as they are day in, day out. And Ben's suggestion was you could – you could I think I'm interpreting this correctly. You lose a ball for doing it. that you, you have to give something to do it. So it isn't quite as crude as that. So in other words, the fielding team can say that, you know, you have preserved a ball and as the batting team, you, you have to pay a price for doing it and the price is one ball. I've, I've heard
1: this, and I, I I hear it, but I don't see the need for it. It ain't broke. There's nothing to fix.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Guy walks off because he's not good enough. He walks off because he feels he's not good enough. I think it was a terrific act of self-sacrifice from Ashwin. He then came on to bowl his four overs brilliantly. Rajasthan won the game by three runs. Total vindication of the decision. That's who
0: he's playing for, Rajasthan.
1: Rajasthan, right? Rajasthan Royals, yeah. Because there was a big mega auction, which incidentally, I, should I know talk it happened.
0: About. Ben did come on and talk about it. I just don't know who plays. Right. For
1: well, well, the, the big mega auction is interesting because it because okay. sides that do the mega auction badly get exposed quite quickly. So, <laughs> who, who are they at the well, moment? CSK, CSK, okay. are and they mu-
0: still a bunch of old blokes. Is Watto still getting a game?
1: They are, and Wado isn't getting a game, <laughs> but uh, MS Dhoni is, and, and and it's quite extraordinary. He's <laughs> He, he's managed to stink the house out on a few occasions. I would say almost actively, not deliberately, but losing games for CSK by <laughs> don't, de- don't like, suggest
0: there's, deliberately. There's, there's nothing <laughs> Don't suggest he's deliberately losing games. For the record, if you're listening, um, Integrity Police, Daniel Norcross did I'm not suggest. I'm not. I'm, I'm saying the exact
1: opposite. He's not doing it <laughs> deliberately, but he goes out the bat and he gets seven off eighteen balls in a T20. Um, and it's, <laughs> you know he could be an un, unbeaten on, st- he's game. the finisher he's the finisher you know
0: it's <laughs> tremendous now
1: I mean I I think it, what it is it, it's a season too long for him he's, he's gone too long in the tooth but CSK found themselves in matches where they haven't even fielded their four overseas players uh, f- filled the four overseas slots because they haven't chosen well enough they're you just know? shit ass yeah they are uh, <laughs> Mumbai Indians found themselves in a similar situation and uh, I think it's because they discarded Tamal Mills too early, actually. They left him out of a game. But I think they only fielded two overseas players the other day. Okay. Uh, so you're starting to see the signs that have actually like traded well. And one of the interesting things here is that Gujarat Titans and Lucknow Super Giants, they're the two new franchises, mm-hmm. which is why you may have looked at me quizzically there. Mm. They, between them, have, have won all but one of their games. Well, no, right. two now because Rajasthan beat them uh, in, the, in that game oh, the okay. other day. So, those tides that have been constructed out of nothing, almost like, you know, blank sheet of paper, here we go into the into the mega auction, unencumbered by the likes of M.S. Dhoni, Because M.S. Tony can do no wrong at, at Chennai because of his long-standing affiliation with that franchise. So, you sense that there's a little bit of a kind of, well, we, you know, sentimentality, which is totally understandable. For Gujarat and Lucknow, no sentimentality. they got themselves a couple of really good squads. Rajasthan similarly had a huge clear out of, brought in a whole new bunch of players. Trent Bolt, for example, has gone there from Mumbai Indians, I think. Uh, and they're up top of the table. Uh, so, what you're seeing here is like strategies and where strategies have worked. So, they, Freddie will be licking his lips, as will Dan Weston, because he will have, they'll all have predicted what magnificent buying strategies these franchises had. And they'll all have been predicting why CSK and Mumbai have completely messed it up. Between those two, the venerable old giants are like the old firm Derby kind of thing, you know, in the IPL, CSK and Mumbai. They've played eight games, and they've lost all of them. So... Keep your eyes peeled. I think it's the 21st of April. They play each other. One of them's got to win. Okay. And in so doing, they'll almost certainly knock the other one out of the competition about a month before <laughs> the, hit, the the qualifying uh, process ends.
0: We'll keep an eye on it, and I promise I'll, I'll try. I'll try to try in the next couple George of Butler's weeks. Josh Butler's still What's
1: the something? only man with 100. Okay. Well. Oh, 100. and one other thing. Maybe he's having a nice time. Keep your eyes on Prithvi Shaw. India lacked dynamism in the World T20, I thought, last year. He, at the top of the order, is is he is pulling up trees, as we say. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if we see him opening in the World T20 in Australia.
0: Let's jump back across the Indian Ocean uh, to Port Elizabeth, one of my favourite places to watch cricket in the world, where um, South Africa played their second Test match against Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh l- lost the first Test being bowled out for 53 And pretty much the same thing has happened uh, in the second test as well. So South Africa, uh, big runs to start. uh, They made 453 with more 50s than you can poke a stick at. Bangladesh all out 217 with Maharaj and Harma assisted by Mulder and Scully maybe as well. Uh, Then South Africa um, set it up, declared and set Bangladesh shitloads and they were all out for 80 this time. In 23.3 overs And just like it was last week They only used two bowlers Maharaj 7 for 40 from 12 this time And Harmer 3 for 34 from 11.3 down the other end So lightning has struck twice Um, As Lawrence Booth popped on Twitter uh, I've always said there are a few challenges in Test cricket Quite like playing South Africa's spinners on their home turf And Andrew Sampson, it's 1906 all over again. <laughs> if you're listening to Storytime story time, you'll know what that reference is to the four leg spinners and uh, Lawrence Booth, the editor of Wisden. We will have on the final word next week, of course, when the almanac is released for 2022. But yeah, staggering stuff there. South Africa win two nil, but Maharaj and Hama. Well,
1: you wait uh, 60 years for them. You wait 60 years for South Africa to bowl a side out and open the bowling with spinners and bowl a side out with them,
0: and then it happens twice in a week. Twice in a week.
1: What, it's a what a sport! What a sport! What a sport! It does mean that. I'm, I'm saying licking my lips at the thought. As I think I probably mentioned to you last week of Maharaj and Harmer in India. Just think of the Harma bowls at a nice pace for those pitches. He does. I think he's going to be and an he interesting won't be
0: and he, and he won't be sort of intimidated by that either. I don't no. think Harma. like this is an unexpected chance to play Test cricket again. Uh, Ramaswamy got in touch uh, during the week to put something on your radar, Daniel. There was a royal double hat trick by Keshav Maharaj. <sighs> Dealing in fifths. In four successive overs, Maharaj's fifth ball snagged the wicket. He says here his nerd pledge in that scenario would have been four twenty lighted up. Uh, oh. with the clue, a royal double hat trick. The twenty representing a fifth and a royal because it involved a Maharaj. I wonder if Andrew Sampson goes this far with his wonderfully. Statistics.
1: Um, I'm glad he didn't send that through as a clue because that might have taken me three hours and I still wouldn't have got to the answer. Well, yeah,
0: that's one of those that (laughs) you're never getting. Uh, But on that note, I think we should play just a little bit of nerd pledge before uh, we go to the break and to our interview. I'm mindful we've been talking for a pretty long time, but that's okay. It's our podcast. We can do what we want. The number this week... Uh, We deal with more of these on Storytime, but just one number in the weekly show from uh, one of your kind patrons who is helping support the show financially. What they do, if you're not familiar, is send through uh, cricket-related numbers uh, in the form of dollars and cents or pounds and pence or any other currency for that matter. There are plenty of currencies on the patron page. And then we try and work out what the number represents in cricket terms. Uh, Keelan O'Reilly is our pleasure on the main show this week, and he has sent through three forty six so three dollars forty six and he sends a clue with it and it reads Never again but after some beta testing I've been instructed to amend the clue to never again mate. I'd like to thank not that Tim Minchin I am his captain in summer sometimes for introducing me to you guys keep up the good work right so not that Tim Minchin uh, as you be aware Daniel is a regular correspondent of Jeff and mine he's been on Nerd Pledge a number of times and yes I remember now that Keelan wrote us a note when when Tim sent us his way and he's now in the numbers you think you've got this you think you've got this Kyle
1: I think I've got this and if I haven't got this then I've got this anyway yes okay because this is what this is what it should be so I'll talk you through my thinking. <laughs> I've done. I've done most of the usuals. I've looked at um, cap numbers three forty six for so England. A guy called Bob Berry okay. played two games, took six wickets. He was a decent player. What nine. could weekend, have been? A, so could that. have
0: been a dusty old bastard. When did he play? Could have been late fifties. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah,
1: average twenty six. I didn't delve too deep into him. That's fine. He didn't really work for me. Um, I checked out Test match number three forty six. It was a quite an unremarkable one between India. and... And a very substandard England team in 1949, when England used to send sort of second string teams, mm. and England won very comfortably. Um, Roy and Mank had opened the batting, but they didn't do the heroics that we mentioned in the previous story times. I, I looked for anything that happened on the 3rd of April 2006. Well... Something that happened on 3rd of April 2016 was remarkable. Carlos Brathwaite hit his four Uh, sixes. Remember the name? But no, nothing's happened on the 3rd of April 2006 to get me interested. I checked out Australian cap number 346.
0: And this, I thought, was a contender. Let me try and work it out. If if 350 was Warnie, would that be right? Was Warnie 350? I think he was. Or is it Ricky Ponting's 350? I know there's a very high-profile Australian cricketer who's 350. I think it's warning. Mm -hmm. So, going back a bit before that, who debuted in 1991-92? Before that, hmm, that's tough. It's possibly Wayne Phillips, but probably not. Who is it? 346? 346, unless
1: my memory has failed me, is Mark Taylor.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I'm in the right ballpark there. You are.
1: And there's a reason why 346 might Might have referred to Mark Taylor because let's look at the clue again. Never again, mate. Mate, now Mark Taylor got three thirty-four not out and then declared. So maybe they thought, never again. Are we going to venerate Bradman's ridiculous number? (laughs) We're going to allow people to go past it. Maddie Hayden doing that, meaning that you know. Now you've got to get past 380, and to Warner doing it even
0: better. Warner going one beyond it, then 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 Australia declaring was uh, was beautiful.
1: Exactly. So that could be never again. I'm not denying it. Okay. But instead, I I've got into the weeds, baby, because I was thinking this could be bowling figures. And as I dug around, I found a guy that you'll be very familiar with, mm. a man called Mick Lewis.
0: Mad McLewis, okay.
1: Mad McLewis. Famous, of course, for having the most expensive one day figures ever.
0: Are they still the worst figures ever from the 438 game? 10 overs, no maidens,
1: none for 117. 113, 113.
0: 113.
1: He was then dropped from the Aussie I was in an squad. indie
0: club in Melbourne following it in the early days. when not, I wouldn't quite call it a smartphone, but enough of the internet was available on your phone that you could follow it. It was a bank holiday Monday, the Sunday night into Monday, and it was about four in the morning, and we were still dancing the night away and couldn't quite believe what we were seeing on our phones as uh, South Africa hauled down 434. They were happy times in 2006, Easter weekend, I reckon.
1: It was an astounding spectacle, wasn't it? And Mick Lewis played a huge part in that. Well, he, he lost his central contract after that he kept on playing for victoria but then injury struck and he was forced out and uh, this opened the door for darren pattinson and clinton Mackay to come barging through so in early 2008 mad mclewis announces his retirement from all forms of cricket citing the fact i like this that his mind was not in it anymore and hoping to allow younger bowlers okay. to, to have their chance and uh, he goes off and plays a bit of club cricket. But played, for,
0: played for Coburg. He lost the semi final to my club, Endeavour Hills, where uh, an old teammate of mine, Chris Pereira, took eight for 24 and it included mixed wicket. Um, Endeavour Hills, my club, by the way. Guess who we've signed in the last couple of weeks? Bearing in mind, this is sub district cricket, not elite cricket, not premier cricket, just recreational cricket, Victorian sub district cricket association. One player I spoke to the other day Saranga Lakmal, Shaw Malik, Fidel Edwards, Lahuru Tirumane, who's opening the batting for Sri Lanka at the moment and led by Tilakaratna Dilshan for the second season. And I asked Saranga about this. I go, Mate, like you're coming to my club, this is extraordinary scenes. And and I, and I rattled off the other players who were playing with him. He didn't even know, he just knew that <laughs> he just knew that Dilshan's playing with him, uh, his old <laughs> teammate from Sri Lanka days. So yeah, this is a, a point of some controversy around the traps in Melbourne um in, I me- can in, imagine. In, in Melbourne recreational cricket that we're gonna have, you know, five or six players who've played international cricket fronting up in the first 11 at different points next season.
1: You, is there a limit on overseas?
0: Uh, there probably should be. I don't, really, <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. Maybe they'll play in different formats and they'll do it that way and they won't play at the same time or or whatever, but it is a, a fairly glaring series of sort of Facebook posts mm. that have gone up. and
1: that, That's a yeah. game to miss if you're playing against. Yeah, oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah I very much so, yeah.
1: So let's get back to Mad Mick Lewis. So okay. he's, he's retired, but then he's called up in 2010-11 for the Retrovision Warriors in the KFC 2020 Big Bash. Early days, yep. He takes a wicket with his very first ball. Bowling Tasmanian batsman Mark Cosgrove.
0: Leicester's yeah. great.
1: Leicester's great. Uh, three for 46 he gets. Okay. It is four overs. Three, four, six. Right. Three for 46. That's good, isn't it? Never it's again, not, mate. Have you never not, played again? It's not convincing enough for me yet. So I'm thinking, no. oh, is that his last game? No. His last game is in the same tournament. The last game that he plays in that tournament is his last ever match. He's also up against Mark Cosgrove again. Okay, Cosgrove this time hits 49. And Mick Lewis, his figures on this occasion are three overs, none for 46.
0: Ah, very, very good, Daniel.
1: Three overs for 46 in his last game. Absolutely diabolical figures. To go with his 10 overs, none for 113. And I think if anybody was going to hang up their boots and say... Never again, mate. It's going to be Mick Lewis under those circumstances. He makes his comeback. He takes three for 46. Then he bowls three overs for 46. If it isn't Mick Lewis, fair play.
0: But that feels right to me. No, it feels right to me. I think the last time we saw Mick Lewis in professional ranks, it was uh, when he started rubbing... (laughs) There was a boundary hit when he was fielding, when he was bowling coach, and he grabbed grabbed the ball and gave it a bit of a rub on the concrete Mm -hmm. back when it was uh, kicked it, I believe. Back back (laughs) when it was more the thing to do. Well he was can't he, really get away he was with fine that. for it he was fine for oh, wasn't yeah he was, <laughs> right. it was it, it,
1: that's not even that's not even a rumor that, that he was he was tried and convicted
0: okay okay well uh, do let us know Keelan O'Reilly if Daniel's right with uh, uh, Mad Mick uh, for 346 uh, Daniel let's take a break on the final word it's been a very long first stretch today we've been going for 90 minutes according to oh, my recorder no, um, when we return I will be talking with Justin Smith about his new book Cooper not out.
2: Hi, I'm Ian Chapel. You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff
0: Lemon. Welcome back to the Final Word. Our interview uh, this week on the show, as we've teed up, uh, is with author, journalist, broadcaster, pundit columnist justin smith a long 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 term observer on all things but politics and national affairs and and cricket as well and, and you've, you've written a novel about our sport and it isn't often that you see fiction around cricket cooper not out welcome to the show what inspired you to write a novel about cricket when you think about it there aren't many there aren't many that do the rounds no i look i love
2: the hi adam i love the game uh, very much, and uh, it's just one of those games. I think it's a bit like uh, baseball in the US. There's an emotional edge to it that that other sport kind of doesn't have. And it was years ago I wrote a play just for fun when I was sort of starting to get into creative writing. I wrote a play. It wasn't particularly good, but I it was, and it was centered around cricket. And uh, I thought no, one day when life settles down a little bit, and I take that I'm going to write a cricket fiction and a, a dear friend of mine just planted a little idea of a bit like the natural with Robert Redford, with mm. baseball of just a, an ordinary kind of person who sort of gets gets their shot for whatever reason. And then I, I started looking around for a, creating a character like that, but I didn't want it to be that kind of thing because it felt a little bit too schmaltzy American to me. It needed to almost be the accidental kind of hero, I think, for, for Australia because that's what we kind of like. And then I, I looked at 1984. I was just reading through some cricket books and I thought, 1984, bloody hell, it's a great year. You know, Kim Hughes resigning in tears. The Windies were out here absolutely flogging us. Lily Marsh Chapel had just retired. You know, it was just... We were in the pits and I thought that's that's it. You know, mm. and I wanted to write about the early eighties and and country Victoria. So it just sort of all flowed out from there. And that that was the inspiration from it. And I did I didn't want the characters to be sort of one dimensional. So from there I was able to build on them and um yeah. and just sort of I loved it. I loved writing it.
0: Be oh honest. no! You, you can tell that, that there is a joy in in the pages, and look, because it requires the suspension of belief, really, or of suspension sure of reality, <laughs> to get to where you need to <laughs> on a number of levels. And that's established fairly on, early on in the book. I mean, the, the premise of uh, Sergeant Roy Cooper, 48 years old, a, a little bit fat, um, you know, a little bit over the hill, about to quit cricket, but he's never been dismissed in 30 years. I mean, of course, that could never happen. But that I couldn't think it, yeah. Because I think you set that up nice and early. It allows the reader to go, okay, this is a bit of a fantasy story. Let's go for yeah. the ride. Is, is that how you felt when penning it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's sort of like, look, hold my hand and,
2: you know, there'll be a bit of shit in here uh, that didn't happen, obviously, but hold my hand and we'll we'll sort of get on on the other side of it. But I I thought also cricket, that that couldn't happen in football. What I was writing about, the fact that Roy Cooper had never been out, never been dismissed, so he's – I don't need to lecture anyone listening to this podcast on how cricket averages work, but his average just went on and I didn't even have an average because he Mm. never went out. That couldn't happen in football. I uh, they couldn't happen in any other sport I could think of. Only in cricket is it sort of mathematically possible for someone to be shit house and yet still have an incredible average, you know. <laughs> it, it's it's the only way it could happen. So I thought, oh, you know, I just and it and and that kind of fell uh fell into place. And and also having him as sort of not just not a particularly good, you know, he just doesn't make a lot of runs. He makes fives and sixes and sevens and you know, but I, it just couldn't happen anywhere else. So that was, um, that, that's how that came about.
0: And yeah. where you set it up, so Penguin Hill, uh, uh, a, a place with no penguin and, and no hill, uh, <laughs> no, you well, know, sort of rural Victoria, I'm sort of imagining it up towards the, the Murray River or something like that, um, you know, a few hours out of Melbourne and the way you kind of, with care, explain what rural Victoria felt like. Uh, in the 80s, in a in a well, small let's... town with small town energy around it as well, with everybody kind of knowing everybody else, and you know, in the middle of all of that, there's obviously a tragedy that 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 binds that community together, which you never really talk about in great depth, but we know enough about to sense that it informs all of the stories of the characters that you bring to life through the pages. I mean, did you have some experience of knowing what it was like to be in rural Victoria in the 80s to draw down on with that?
2: Yeah. I love the, I love what you've picked up on there, and particularly that 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 tragedy that binds them together. And I I sort of deliberately didn't want to spell out, you know, how every person was reacting to that and whatever, because you know these things do happen in in the, the country areas. They've all got every town has got their tragedy somewhere, mm. you know. Mm. But yeah, I did. I grew up in a chuka in, uh, and so in 1984 I was at high school in chuka and then when I grew up I sort of played cricket at, at all these kinds of places. And I lived in Swan Hill for a while, you know, where there is no swans, no bloody hill, you know, and I never <laughs> forgot that, you know, I just, and I remember sort of being in town there because I was, I was sort of starting out at radio and I was, and I went there as a kid and I said, uh, you know, what, what's with the swans and what's with the hill? And everyone just went, ooh, ooh, so I don't know. I just always remembered it. And um so to me, it's sort of around, somebody asked me this, they said, what's the town? I said, geographically, it's Donald. Now, I don't know if you know the town of yeah, like Donald. I do, yes yeah, yeah. You do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's sort of geographically plonked there. So when I wrote about the other clubs, uh, the Bangarang Boys and, and all of those kind of clubs, I just, I put Donald at the centre of it and then I looked at, at the clubs all around it and, and um, I think it was, it was West Wyong or one of the other ones and and, I, and, and that was the geographical centre. But they're all the kind of same, in a good way. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, I'm a country boy, but they, they've all got a similar flavour. And these are the smells of my youth, which is, you know, uh, weak lime cordial, you know, fruitcake. cake. Yes. You know, that, that's what the house used to smell like. And that's what a treat used to smell like because we didn't get a lot of treats, did we, really, when we were kids? Not like you can sort of. You know, we didn't have a McDonald's in town or, or those kind of things. You know, had the milk bar and you got the Sunny Boy and you got it once a week <laughs> and 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 that kind of thing. So I, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of create some of that sort of gentleness.
0: in in there I I I, I did like the fact that you dropped the Sunny Boy reference into there at some stage or another if I if I think about my childhood around the cricket club albeit in suburban Melbourne not rural Victoria Mm. but you know I I can I can see the Sunny Boy I can feel the Sunny Boy (laughs) in my mouth I can feel that squeeze at the bottom of it trying to push the the start of the process there when it's frozen cold out of the freezer I think it's a very relatable experience you suck on the corner until it goes white and then yes. you get to
2: the other corner and suck on that till <laughs> it goes white. And then you sort of chew at it. And there was a way of, there was a way of eating it, you know, and, and the milk bar guy always had scissors. So there was a pair of scissors always close by to, to take the top off a kid's sunny board because he didn't have these fancy bloody dimple rip tag things <laughs> that you know they've got on <laughs> on confectionery now you know you needed you needed scissors to get into these
0: things yeah you know. yeah but um i hope they I still think- exist I, I hope somewhere that's i mean i wouldn't know i've not i've not uh, i've not uh, seen fit to try and buy one for a long time but i hope that kids these days uh growing up in uh, in victoria i assume sunny boys were a victorian thing that still exists somewhere
2: I should have gone, as part of research, I should have gone down to a milk bar somewhere and and grabbed a a few Sunny Boys and a a Raz, because that was a raspberry (laughs) one, Raz, and and the Glug? Yeah, and the Glug, which the Cola one. The Cola one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I went upstairs, you know, I write downstairs in a study and I um, was just at that part of writing and I went upstairs to my wife and I said, look, if you could have a... Glug, a Sunny Boy, or a Raz? She said, you know, I haven't heard those names for a while. So, which one would you pick? And she said, I always had the Raz. So I thought, oh, great. So the little girl in the milk bar has got to have the Raz. Absolutely. So that's,
0: uh, yeah. And and, and I mean, yeah, there's that texture to it about these sort of really kind of complex characters who who live in the bush and we might – Uh, Touch on a couple of the themes later around sexuality, especially and and gender norms. But the other key character, apart from our sergeant, who I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying goes on to play a test match, is Donna Garrett or Don Garrett per the pen name. So you've made the decision for the best cricket writer in Australia to be a woman, but to never be able to reveal her sex because you needed to be Don, not Donna, to have credibility in the game in the 80s. It wasn't a place that was suitable for women that's a great twist there how did you come up with that I, I, it was in the era of 1984
2: and i thought i want to i want to i need to narrate this i need to sort of tie it all together and i, I love the idea of being a columnist myself i sort of mm. love the idea of and i was sort of inspired by um you know all people that, that write cricket you know um uh, gideon uh, you know is so good you know and and there's so many people that are, are good at writing about sport and do such a beautiful job. I want to sort of pay homage to that. But I thought, well, this would be lovely if we have a, you know, we wouldn't have had a lot of women cricket writers back then. And uh, they, if they were, they wouldn't have been taken seriously. So I thought, well, look, if we, if we, we make that, that'll give a little extra mystery. If the greatest cricket writer in Australia is thought of as sort of an old bloke wearing a hat, you know, who sits in the stand and scribbles notes and writes these beautiful words, but in fact, it's a woman who's a lot younger and sits at a kitchen table in Brunswick you know, is is belting out these great columns. I thought, oh, that'd be just uh, lovely. So, and I, oh God, I love her. I, I, miss her like a pain. Uh, and I'm, I'm not overstating that. I, she feels like somebody I, I want to text. You know, and just send a text and say, hey, what's going on? You know, you want to catch up next week and have coffee or something. Yeah. <laughs> she's just like that friend that I read because she's sort of based on a few friends of mine uh, as well as a few female journalists, like uh, people like Rebecca Wilson. Mm-hmm. Who, who passed away a few years ago now, but people like that who were who sort of blazed the trail a bit for, for, for women because there was a lot of patronising crap there for a while for female sports writers. You know, it was sort of like they were seen as a novelty until they got the power of their own and had built up, which is what they've got now. And they're terrific, obviously. don't need to tell you that. You know.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, great- I, I think what you said there about wanting to text Donna I wish Donna was on the tour with us, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, that's my, such my, colleague, a great thing to say. my colleague, Pete Lawler from the Australian newspaper, often bemoans the fact that we don't have enough women writing about cricket around the world at the moment, which isn't yeah. to say there haven't been, and there isn't at the moment, outstanding women who are doing the job, but just the sheer numbers problem that there isn't enough and that we should have more. Yeah. And it's a disparity yeah. that, that is stark. When we went on a tour to Pakistan and we had... I think we had seven of us and there was one woman, Melinda Farrell, writing for the Sporting News. But that would be about yeah. right. The ratio might be sort of one in ten, maybe even worse than that, come to think about it, in, in tours that I've done before and, and when you're at home in the Australian press box. where we need to do better is that. So, yeah, I wonder whether there might be a sort of a Donna Garrett who might read this book and feel inspired. Even, and you'll forgive me for not remembering the name of the character, the, the young girl who finds, who goes through the archives. Yeah, Cassie. Cassie goes through the goes through the archives mm. and, and works out the historical significance of Sergeant Cooper's performances and brings it to the attention of Donna. I mean, I sort of feel as though she will be a cricket writer one day, fictional as it is, and there'll be people like her who'll read this book and they might see fit to go on this journey. That's it. that's exactly
2: how I see her. You know, I see her growing up and doing that, you know, and still being in love with cricket. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I just... Yeah, look, it's it's my favourite character uh, in the book. You know, it was my favourite character to write about and and the one that I guess you put most of yourself into, you know. Like I was talking to my wife about it and uh, she is um, currently, she read the, read the book but she's currently listening to the audio book of it while, while she's exercising. And she said, I hadn't realised it before but I, I feel incredibly close to that young girl, Cassie. It's exactly what I was like as a kid. And I hadn't thought about that. But I think I was actually writing a lot about my wife and how she described, how she felt about things as a child and the way that she had, had seen the world. So a, a nice thought, Cassie, growing up and, and sort of, you know, rocking the world of cricket.
0: There's a lot there around fatherhood and yep. gender, which we've touched on already, and crucially, sexuality. Again, we sort of touched on mm-hmm. uh, the idea of uh, women not being welcome in cricket in the early 80s. Well, you certainly weren't welcome if you're a gay man, and I'm not spoiling oh, no. anything here no. by saying that Roy Cooper is, at least at some level, a gay man, albeit one yep. that doesn't come out as such. But we mm. get to have that, almost that early twist, you're like, oh, that, oh, that's what you're, <laughs> that's what's happening there on Sunday afternoons. <laughs> Oh, and there's that moment as a reader. It doesn't take long for you to get to it, but that feels like it's a it's a nice little touch to again remind people that there would have always been gay middle-aged coppers who played cricket who just never would have felt comfortable in revealing yeah. who they really were and maybe they still don't feel comfortable revealing who they really are um, to the world but how different the world is now compared to then that's quite stark and and it, it makes sense that back in 1984 that Roy Cooper would never talk about this
2: no and look, look you know there's a lot of fun to the book uh, but you know, the, there is a serious side is the fact that in 1984, if you're a gay guy in the country or a gay person in the country, you're in a lot of strife. Yeah, you know, you you either had to move away, or come out and face, you know, uh, ridicule and 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 possibly being ostracised, or just shove it down into your gut and never tell anyone. You know, and not admitting who you really are. And not being true to yourself, you know, it causes a, it causes a lot of pain. And it has, thankfully, we've sort of moved on, you know, from that. But I, I wanted that to, to sort of put that little stamp in there. Because also, we're all complicated as people. You know, we've all got little things that are different about it. And I think sometimes with writing is that when we go back in time, and let's face it, 1984 is history now. It's not last week. You know, That's a, it's a hell of a long time ago now it's classed as Australian history. You go back into 1984, you can't, you know, people are all complicated. They don't all do the same thing for the same reasons. They're not sort of all one dimensional. I think sometimes when we do go back and write about historical people, even if they're fictional, we sort of put them all into little, little categories. We don't make them complicated. I wanted to make sure that these I had, they did have complicated lives. They weren't, they weren't easy lives to have even though they were living in the country in
0: 1984,
2: you know, they're not easy
0: lives. And the other side of it is the fun. It is the colour and movement and the sort of journey that you get taken on into the Australian dressing room. I suppose you had a, a big decision to make here, didn't you? Either all the characters are fictional or you do fictional accounts of real Cricketers, and so you do with Alan Border, and there's some great scenes with AB, Greg Matthews, who you do a good job of uh, caricaturing, but also, I mean, <laughs> that kind of is Mo, isn't it, to, to a major extent? That is Mo, uh, yes, um, yeah. Digger Hilditch, uh, Viv Richards, Joel Garner, I mean, a lot of cricketers who we kind of know and cherish, and even some who, who never went on to become real household names you thought you would use them as the device rather than starting off with a brand-new Australian cricket team. That must have been tough in a way, knowing that you were going to be putting words in the mouths of people who are actually real and they might happen upon this and they may not necessarily agree with you. Like, there is a, a little bit of a friction there.
2: Yeah, there is. And I I, uh, I mean, I'll let you know a little secret too is the original manuscripts of it was a little harsher on some of the characters, you know, like it made them a little bit more standoffish and whatever. And I was talking to the editor about it. Um, Patrick Mangan was my editor from Penguin, a fantastic guy who grew up in in, in country Victoria and had a great love and understanding of, of these characters too. And, we, you know, he was he's suggesting to sort of, t- not so much tone it down a bit, but, but pro- probably just be a little bit more, given the benefit of the doubt of what they would have been like in that situation. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I decided that now I want to put Border in it, because I love Border, and I wanted to put Mo in it and people like that, and and be able to write about them. But I thought, oh, look, I'll just write it and then we'll have a look at it at the the end and then we'll just, we'll see. And I I think, you know, I put in the acknowledgements at the end that any any real person and any words that I've put in their mouth is done with complete respect. And I would hope that they wouldn't take exception to it. And, And all the scores are real which you I, 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 yeah, yeah. I don't doubt you would have picked up on Adam. Every score with the exception of Roy Cooper's score um, <laughs> is is real. So you know I had a I, I just I thought I wanted to do that as properly as I could. And Viv Richards, writing about Viv, like it's a writer's dream to describe Viv Richards or or Michael holding bowling. you know it's not I, I hope I've done it justice, but it's a lovely thing to say, oh, I've got to describe. how would I describe Viv?
0: Well, in yeah. a way, you got to become a cricket writer as well when you think about it because you, yeah. you 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 absorb Donna's copy or Don's copy into your book. So, you know, we get to see what Don was writing about various test matches and specifically the test that we drill down to at Melbourne at the very end, the sort of the centrepiece of the book. So you get to sort of live out that experience of being the cricket writer fantasy. too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a fantasy of mine to write. I mean, to be
2: one of you guys going you know, to be travelling around the world. And to be writing about cricket and talking about cricket and being like that's a dream for me, you know I would just love to do that, you know, I I, I can't play, I've never been able to play cricket I love I love to play cricket but I was bloody hopeless at it. Um, <laughs> as I said the other day to, to paraphrase Blackadder, there are tribes in the Amazonian rainforest untouched by civilization that could play cricket better than I could. <laughs> uh, but you know I, I but I really but I but I, I loved it and I still. Would uh, I still got a dream one day, you know, I'd love to be able to, you know, call a game or, or something like that.
0: I had a colleague who uh, who just through circumstance ended up on the tour with us for one summer, about four or five years ago, just the way the rhythm of his professional career landed. He spent effectively two months on the cricket beat, having never oh, been on man. the cricket beat before. It was just <laughs> by sheer coincidence that it played out that way. And it was effectively his last assignment in sport before moving on to other uh, another profession. And he said, what an amazing way to finish his journalistic career! Oh, yeah. Just kind of dropping into a cricketing summer and getting to do something that he'd admired and kind of what you say as well, had, had dreamed of doing throughout his career in journalism. And I and I sense that too, having had another career altogether, and having kind of come to cricket a little bit late in journalism a little bit later than most. I still feel that that you know, not imposter syndrome necessarily, but that sense that. This was a dream which I've been able to translate into something of a reality. But for the longest time, I, I did see it as a dream. I used to joke that my absolute dream life post-politics would be to write about cricket in the Australian summer and the English summer and, and commentate on the radio. And effectively, I'm doing that at the moment. You're so, doing it, yeah. yeah. Well, which uh... is lovely. But I mean, I also appreciate that from you getting to, to dip into that, that it might um, spark something of a fire in you to move in that direction later in life, perhaps.
2: Oh, I'd love to. And I mean, I can assure you, uh, Adam, that you are not an imposter. And I think what, one of the beautiful things about people like you is that you don't need to have played test cricket to be able to see the beauty in it. And again, I think that's one of the things that is unique to cricket. I really do believe that. I think there is a uniqueness to the game, that the way it affects you. And I don't think we've ever seen it more than when Shane Warne left us. And, you know, the the way that people reacted to that... Even people who didn't care about cricket understood why that was big, you know, not just because of his personality, but because of his talents and what he was sort of able to give us on the field. Was so big and so, so powerful that we, uh, you know, it, it, we're going to feel that for decades, that loss, you know, for, for absolute decades.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, the public outpouring was was profound, wasn't it? And and to be expected, if you had have been told beforehand that Shane Warne's going to pass away, you would expect it to be like that, which is befitting of the the place that he held yeah. in, in the game yeah, and in the public consciousness. Yeah. That it was it was coincidental that you talk about effectively an MCG miracle in your book, or you build towards an MCG miracle of sorts. That there was one last summer. I think that was yes. such a lovely thing. That as this book hit the shelves. Scott Boland emerges and takes six for seven at the MCG, wins the Johnny Muller Medal, which was a deeply emotional moment. I thought yes. when, when when he was announced to the um, to the great Southern Stand, now forever will be known as the Shane Warne Stand, uh, in the Indigenous Welcome to Country, and the way that the Victorian people responded to Scott Boland being an Indigenous man at that moment in the Indigenous Welcome was, uh, I think. Yes. A, 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 I said at the time on the podcast that Martin Flanagan wrote about the 93 grand final being the great unrecognised reconciliation ceremony that, that we never knew we had or never knew he perhaps needed to have, I think that fit into the slipstream uh, with Scott Boland, an MCG miracle in fiction, in print that you'd written whilst one was playing at in real life. That, that must have been lost upon you when, when selling some copies of the book. It, it was
2: not. And I was sitting there watching it going, oh, man, this is the greatest. I'm loving every second of this. You know, this is just fantastic cricket, you know. And, I then, and then the, the, my phone I beeps with a text and it's my publisher, Ali Watts uh, from, uh, from Penguin, He said, are you bloody watching this? She said, are you watching this? She said, this is Roy. It's Roy. <laughs> you know, she was really excited by it. And, um, you know, I thought oh, it was the MCG miracle. That's right. You couldn't have written that one, could you? No, um, no, you, know, you could I, I tried, but, you know, it might you know. be Roy too. Yeah. He becomes a bowler.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, a, a, a bowler, a journeyman bowler who who loses thirty kilos or whatever it was. Maybe not thirty, but lost a lot of weight to get into the Victorian mm. team, and you know all of the um, yeah the bowling story is an absolute beauty. And and, and, is. Those, and the other major character we haven't touched on is one that I'm not sure who you were who you were trying to to tap into here specifically, but the the broken down. Uh, washed up, great, all time great, the, the the knight of the realm, who at this stage of his life is acting as the chief selector, and who ultimately um, gives Roy the nod. But y- you sense that bitterness of somebody who was seen in such high esteem. Kind of referring in a way to back to Shane Warnigan aren't we? Like someone who was clearly reached that that stage in his playing career where he was untouchable, and now is presumably a sixty something or a seventy something. Your character. Didn't quite feel and the he's love an anymore. Old prick. Yeah, and he, and he becomes an old prick, and probably because he doesn't feel the public adulation anymore.
2: That's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I based that on uh, a few different people. Uh, Sir Walter, Sir Walter Grant, as they call him in Victoria, but he hates it and insists that people call him Sir Walter Grant. <laughs> so when people call him Wally Grant in Victoria, <laughs> he just goes ballistic. But um, I sort of based that on a few people, and and there's a little bit of Bradman in there, but not in a not in a kind of nasty way. It was more or less sort of the esteem that, that he had been held in at that point and then went into sort of administration. Right. And he and Chapel Ian Chapel had their blues. You know, they didn't sort of see eye to eye during the, you know, the, um, the World Series cricket and, and, and the, over, you know, the, the, the big overhaul and the big Crick packer wars that were going on. They didn't see eye to eye. So I wanted to sort of write about that. But instead of making him a Don Bradman sort of character, I did turn him into a complete old prick. That he is is based very much on a person who I don't think I'll say the name of, if that's all right. Because,
0: no, no, that's know. fine. But but also like I think there's humour in that too. Like I found myself in some of those darker passages laughing quite hard at the the way in which you you depicted him. So I think it it hit the spot. Uh, as does the whole book. Uh, I mean, as I say, it, it's it's fiction, it's fantasy, it's a wild ride, and it's a. A wonderful contribution uh justin thank you for writing it i really enjoyed reading it i'm sure um, our listeners will as well uh, and thanks for coming on to the final word for for having a chat about it man it's wonderful and and look to have cricket people uh, you know i've had a few people that aren't cricket
2: fans say look i don't like cricket but i love this book so to have somebody like you completely on the other side saying i love cricket and i still like the book that means a great deal to me thank you mate Hi, I'm
0: Natalie Gimonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final Word, Adam Collins, Daniel Norcross, preparing to sign off after uh, that lovely conversation with Justin Smith, who, um, yeah, I, I like how he, he sort of conceived of the book uh, initially as just wanting to uh, tell a tale akin to the natural in baseball and developing this fictional character who would do this extraordinary, fanciful thing. Ending up in the test team and all the various subplots. Yeah, I think it's one of those books that, uh, that, that cricket fans will, will probably quite enjoy because there aren't that many cricket pieces of cricket fiction to begin with. There was the, the, Nathan, the Nathan Lehman book, The Test, a couple of years ago, which I really, really enjoyed. The The premise of that is an England test captain playing their last test match at Lords, an Ashes test match. I won't tell you what happens in the match, but it's kind of like a Cambridge educated. Mm. There are some similarities here with Michael Atherton, I suppose you would say, an opening bat, captaining. England went to Cambridge, but a more, yeah, far more sort of a, a controversial character, I think, in that book than, than Athens was when he played. Um, but. That's the last time I can remember picking up a, a piece of cricket fiction. There was the the, the Glory and the Cup books from uh, back they're in They're beautiful.
1: Day. I mean, yeah. they're, they're definitely for kids, but they are kind of lovely. Like I, I
0: learned how to score out of them. Did you? Yeah, because they were the scorecards, oh, actually, yeah, the did. proper score sheets in the book. Was educational, wasn't it? The Glory yeah. Gardens books. Glory Gardens.
1: Um, there's a really terrible uh, novel co-written between Ian Botham and Dennis Coat, I want to say, or Coth, <laughs> which is uh, really uh, avoid that. Um, and there is a truly staggering, the great test match mystery, I think it's called, which Emma John, the Guardian and Observer journalist, put me onto, <laughs> which is an absolutely marvelous, uh, I think possibly appallingly written book, but it involves kidnap and the England captain being kidnapped and stuck in a basement about 50 miles from the ground. And, um, I mean, it's almost sort of Thomas Sharpian in its madness. Uh, and of course there was the film wasn't there the final test which is a little bit like the test which was made in like 1948 49 i think which has features len hutton among others and alec bedson venerable english actor called jack warner plays the part. he was dixon of Doc green in black and white tv days and he, he a plays a, a sort um, of is that on youtube Hobbs. or something like that i, think I it believe be. it is uh, but yeah i mean cricket fiction there isn't much of it about, and I love. I bought, the I bought of a it. piece
0: of cricket fiction after reading that that Justin Smith book on the advice of Gideon Haig, who who uh, recommended Peter Gibbs settling the score, and I dragged it around Pakistan with me for four weeks, expecting to read it on a quiet night there, which didn't exist. Yeah. Ended up. I'm um, reading Osman Samiudin's book around Pakistan cricket a second time instead because, you know, we're yeah. in Rome. But yeah, I have got a copy of Settling the Score in theory and then I left it on the bedside table of our hotel oh. when leaving Lahore. Thankfully, Tom Decent picked it up and he's going to mail it back to me. Oh, that's a beautiful story. You're destined to read it. I am, mm-hmm. and I just? Yeah. Nice place to leave the show. Lovely. Has been the final word. I've been Adam Collins. He's been Daniel Norcross. Thanks I to have. everybody who listens and contributes to the show in all sorts of ways, uh, which includes the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash... The final word. We won't be doing a story time this week, as I mentioned off the top, because it's Easter and we all have uh, other stuff on. Uh, but we will be back next week with Jeff and me for the weekly show, and so it goes through the season of 2022. This is the final word, season 12, episode one. Farewell for now. Goodbye. I had to go.